Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, the original series saga ends with peace between the Federation and the Klingons. It's 1991, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. everybody welcome once again to bondzilla presents i am nick i'm will and today we are back to uh end an era not fully end our star trek era uh but to discuss the final film featuring the full original series cast uh in the undiscovered country can i can i point out two things for the longtime listeners yes just to clear the air Nick and I had our kind of preliminary talk before the podcast, but I, w- I do want to put this out. Two things. One is I was informing Nick that I did, in fact, receive for our longtime listeners of the Bonzella podcast. I received the full uh, Waxwork Records uh, collection of the Showa era vinyl soundtracks of the Showa era films of Godzilla. I have not let you listen to it. But just from a collector's point of view, it did not disappoint yet. I mean, it was it's just a great collection. Um, but the other thing I was going to mention was that uh, Nick and I had spoke, and I also did see via our social media is that there was some interest in uh, us talking about the newly released in the states uh, release of Godzilla Singular Point, the anime. Yes, and. My intention is that it will happen. I think Nick and I agreed that it will happen. Uh, and honestly, it is just a matter of us watching it. And it's a matter of our schedules. So yeah. that's like and really the thing. So this is where I will formally apologize that we are not like your average ambitious streamers <laughs> who who actually take the time to move heaven and earth to watch it. Uh, but you know, I I think this is one of the things, and I and I don't know, Nick. Maybe you can, maybe you can chime in on this. But I think maybe there's a level of why our audience, as devoted as they are, actually do like us is that we do, we 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 kind of manage things on our own terms a little bit. Like mm-hmm. you know, we like so in terms of Godzilla Singular Point, I I will be upfront and being like, I don't want to watch that under a deadline for the show. Yeah. And, we, want to, we want to be able to enjoy it and like give right. our actual thoughts on right like on I, I i want to like the thing is like i take pride in is like i watch these as a fan and i will give you my opinions afterwards yeah um so that will happen from my from my perspective like it, it definitely will happen and uh it will just be a matter of in the next few months or so like i not even that like you you won't have to wait too long but it will happen. Uh, I I will watch the entire show. Nick will watch the entire show, 
and uh, we will talk about it. Yeah, we will definitely put something out there. I know there's been a lot of requests, um, and because uh, I do enjoy, like I said, we've gotten so much support for this new era of the show, and our uh, our our recent episodes have been very successful. So we thank you guys for that. But we also we we don't forget our roots, and we know that we are. You know, we, we have a big following in, in the Kaiju community and in the Bond community. And so, you know, we we were very happy to finally do Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, we were, we we're going to be very happy to finally get No Time to Die out of the way when it comes out later this year. Uh, well, it is funny because this is like an example of probably like, you know, we 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 definitely don't play by the rules of the algorithm. Like no. we <laughs> well i mean we it's like yeah definitely but, don't strike when the iron is hot but well, we strike the we strike the iron when we have the most to strike it with right as far as, yeah well, i mean i think it's also the fact that it's a series and it like you know again we don't want to you know like I if am, it's just if it's a move stoked i know I, I'm, I, I'm very excited I'm to, very excited to check it out at some point and i'm very excited to talk about on the show so long story short yes we will be getting to godzilla singular port at some point soon down the road so the new the new jet jaguar is on my lock screen nick can't see it yeah there it is there it is i can see it yeah and that's the thing like because you know you know us we're the biggest jet jaguar supporters on the planet right in right. theory like there might be, maybe there's one dude who has like an actual jet jaguar like in his house i I, be- I i think that I think it's safe to say that Jet Jaguar is slowly getting his day in the sun. Yes, I, I think that's that's happening, and that and that's what's really fun. So that's the that's the movie where someone like watches Megalon and is like, "Oh, cool! I'm going to build my own Jet Jaguar." But then he doesn't realize that like it's going to come to life too. You know, that's mm-hmm. like a meta thing. It's pretty sick. Um, yeah. So we we will do Singular Point at some point, everybody. Um, and I I know it'll be a great discussion. Um, and I, I, you know, when we'll talk about the show, we'll talk about like, you know, what we like and what we don't like about it as we always do on the podcast. And we'll, we'll, we'll say it straight from our fandom hearts. Yep. Anyway, it's happening. So. Yeah, it will happen. Uh, until, until then Star Trek. Yeah. And then also long time listeners of the show will know that we liked Flash Gordon and I showed my girlfriend Flash Gordon and she liked it a lot too. So please watch Flash Gordon. It's a great movie. With a killer soundtrack, mm-hmm. and even more parts that you forget are amazing right. until you rewatch it. Not the bullworms. <laughs> All right, Star Trek though. We are not talking about Flash Gordon. We are talking about another sci-fi motion picture today. Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country, the last of the original series films. Uh, the last uh, with the original series cast as, as I should say, we do eventually get more original series characters in these movies down the line in different means, but this is the last film in sort of these six original series films before we transition over to the next generation. Um, so we ready to go. Oh, please. Okay. By all means. So we're going to be talking about, yep. The, ne- the Star Trek six, the next, not, not the next Star Trek six, the undiscovered country from 1991, which is something that blows my mind because, you know, I just always associate start this Star Trek with like, you know, obviously the sixties and then into the eighties, but like this movie came out like 
three months after I was born. The fact that there was like still an original series movie when I was technically alive is kind of crazy to me. Like I just, it still like boggles my mind a little bit. So anyways, where did we leave off last time on the star Trek? We had star Trek five, the final frontier Shatner directs finding God, all the stuff we talked about last time. And it was, you know, a, a relative failure at the box office. It was, you know, a balloon, a little bit of a balloon budget from one they were working with, not great reviews, much lower intake than, you know, the previous even three movies. So there was a lot of discussion in inside Paramount about what to do because they knew that they couldn't leave the original series there. They knew that they had the 25th anniversary coming up in 1991 and they wanted to make a big splash of like 25 years of Star Trek. But they knew that it was kind of in a mess, that there there was, what was the direction to go after sort of the, the mishap that was Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. So as with sort of the original movie were a lot, there were a lot of issues with it, but a lot of the blame was kind of shouldered on Roddenberry for that first movie. Something similar happened with this one where they, people knew that they couldn't blame Shatner for the failure of the final frontier because, you know, Kirk was still their ace in the hole. Kirk was still a, a hugely important part and they couldn't risk, you know, sort of alienating, uh, Shatner from the franchise so that blame for the movie couldn't be shouldered on Shatner so instead a lot of the blame sort of internally at Paramount came onto Harv Bennett for not kind of taking control and not seeing the issues with the movie earlier in development so Harv was already at a point where they you know he was kind of burnt out the the, the mess of Star Trek 5 and it's you know release and its reviews like wasn't helping that, you know, he had had to be convinced to do star Trek five. So he was already kind of like one foot out the door, but paramount, even though they were sort of shoulder to blame gave him like, okay, well you did kind of save our series with wrath of Khan and that original kind of trilogy. You were a big part of that. So we're going to give you one more chance to kind of pitch us what the next star Trek movie is. So like, go ahead, give us something, give us, we're going to give you a shot. So Harv, was very eager not to have to work with the original series cast anymore, that he wanted to kind of take Star Trek in his own direction. So he pulled out from his sort of files a long-standing backup project for the Star Trek franchise in some scenario where Shatner or Nimoy uh, didn't want to come back to the series, that they had this kind of backup plan. And Harv was very passionate about this movie, which was called Star Trek The Academy Years, which was going to be a prequel that was featured like a, like a, a wraparound story of McCoy telling how he met um, Shatner and Nimoy at Academy. And it would be like kind of a, ba- a flashback with younger actors playing Spock, Kirk, McCoy, and basically Scotty as well. And sort of a big mystery happens at the Academy and then an action and adventure. Basically, the pitch that he gave in you know late 89, early 90 was described as Top Gun in space because Top Gun was the new hot thing. <laughs> and by all accounts, even though this project was brought up to Paramount in the past, 
as kind of like, again, if, if something doesn't work out with Shatner, we can bring this in. By all accounts, Harb's pitch for the Academy years was dead on arrival. It was just a bad pitch, just, you know, not well put together. The original series cast got some word of this and were mad that they weren't going to be in it. So then they kind of rewrote part of the pitch to have Shatner and Nimoy involved in the, in the, in the, in the modern day sequences, quote unquote, and have more of a connection between the two scenes. But the writing was on the wall and Paramount was like, okay, we're, we're moving on without you, Harv. Unless you want to do Star Trek six with the original cast, we're out. And Harv said they offered me like a million dollars to do Star Trek six. I didn't want to do Star Trek six. I wanted to do the Academy years. And it was just, was this all parties was just like, okay, we're moving on. And so just, I mean, like Harv is a very important figure in, in Star Trek history and, and the, his influence on the franchise and the way that he kind of did Star Trek two, three, and four is, is not to be denied. Um, in, in terms of how important it is to shaping sort of what we know as Trek and how the original series and those original series films are still viewed today. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. So Harv leaves and now Paramounts are like, okay, we got to do something for the 25th anniversary. And the first person to slip in as soon as they hear Harv is out of the picture is one Walter Kenning, the man who plays Chekhov himself. He had this whole outline ready to go uh, where basically all the, all the crew except for Spock are forced to retire. Spock is captured on this planet by these, like what he described as like the things like aliens that the aliens from aliens would eventually evolve from like these super crazy creatures. So the original crew has to get back together to save Spock. The most notable thing about uh, the Walter Coding script is that everybody dies except Spock and McCoy. Uh, by the end of the script. And Paramount was like, nope, that's not what we're doing. Thanks, buddy, but we're not doing that. Well, that was always like my my brief research of the past, I want to say two films, is like his involvement of wanting to have some creative input on the Star Trek movies was kind of like a like a like a b plot yes in in the making of all these movies is yeah that, is that Chekhov was always trying to like get his get his foot stories. in the door yeah, yeah 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 um eventually i do believe that he technically does write or direct like one of the officially unofficial like continuation series that like fans would do um i think he did like write one or two of those um as well so uh, so we did get involvement, just not an official capacity, just like the Paramount endorsed fan series, um, which are which are cool that they always exist. Now Paramount had one idea in mind. Paramount was like, well, what were what was our most successful movie? What were our most successful films? They were the ones that were you know creatively headed by Leonard Nimoy. So we want Leonard Nimoy back on the creative room. We want kind of his ideas, and Nimoy was kind of of two minds about it. Like he wanted, he liked being creatively involved. He liked having a, a, a say in things. And he kind of knew the writing on the wall that like, okay, their time in the Star Trek franchise was ending. So he wanted a stronger end. But, you know, he wasn't interested in directing again because he didn't want to get into the same issues as Star Trek four, where it's like, he's on camera all the time and trying to direct as, as successful as that movie was. It was very tough on him. And even at this point, like despite his success with like three men and a baby and the Star Trek films, 
his directing career was already starting to kind of wind down. Like he only had a couple more films after 1991. So he was kind of like, he's getting older. He's like not having the energy to direct. He likes it. He likes being creative and involved, but so he'll, he'll take the gig while also secretly trying to kind of not be chosen as director, especially because he knows that him being chosen as director would only be a more crushing blow to Shatner because Shatner would see like, oh, they didn't like my movie. So they got like my co-star and the guy who made all the good movies back, you know, like he didn't want to hurt Shatner's feelings and he wasn't really interested in directing either, but he decided, okay, I'm going to help shape what the movie is and I'm going to find somebody to do something. So the first idea that Nimoy and Paramount have together is the very obvious idea, which is a time travel crossover movie between the original series and the next generation. That seemed like the obvious choice. It would be a good way to lead into eventual next generation films, kind of passing the baton. But nobody on the next generation wanted anything to do with doing a movie at this point because there's two sides of it. The cast, they knew that if they were going to do a movie, they would have to do it in between seasons. And they weren't like the seasons were when they got to do other stuff like, you know, Patrick Stewart would go back to England to do Shakespeare. Uh, uh, Jonathan Frakes would do like the things that would eventually make him a meme, like all this sort of stuff where it's like they, and people would go on vacation. And the, th the thought for them of like doing a whole season of Star Trek, then playing those same characters for like three months and then going right back to playing those characters on TV just didn't appeal to anybody. So the cast was just like, and they knew they weren't going to get a lot of money for it because Paramount was trying to keep the budget down. So they were like a no-go. So then it would fall on the crew to shorten the length of the season to accommodate filming during the time that they would normally film on the season. But the crew and the writing team didn't want to lose any episodes, didn't want to lose any money in their syndication deals. So basically the next generation crew were like no dice on, on a crossover movie, nothing. Um, and then one Paramount executive was like, well, why don't we just have, like Patrick Stewart at the end, shake, wait, shake Shatner's hand. And like, even Nimoy's like, then no, the timeline would not, that doesn't work. Like that, the theories are way too far apart. So it, it, it is funny. Like what struck me about even before this information you were giving me, just like, because I kind of cursor, like just on a surface level knew about how like, this, the Star Trek franchise has, like, been very... They have maintained this timeline. Like, they haven't really, like, you know, they, they go out of their way to justify any type of crossover. <laughs> like, they're not frivolous about, like, just crossing over. They want to stay honest and uh, to the timeline. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's something that you don't really... You really haven't seen until maybe, like, the MCU now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That like something yeah. that wants to honor the timeline as much as possible. Yeah, because it, it would be very easy. Like you can definitely see a studio person being like, "Well, just cross them over." Yeah, but like, yeah. So that that's just kind of what reminds me about at the end of the day, like what's so sacred about Star Trek in a way that you never thought of, thought of it. Mm -hmm. So now they're back at kind of square one. Like the obvious idea clearly isn't going to happen. You know, and they're not going to just end the next generation just to do this movie because it's still a very successful syndicated series. Like they're 
they're super popular and getting viewers and you know paramount knows that they have to kind of build that series because eventually again it is going to take over the movie franchise like that is the plan sometime down the road so nimoy is starting to think about well who else can we get in here who else can like we bounce ideas off of and nimoy was like wait a minute the two best star trek films who else was involved nicholas meyer i'm friends with nicholas meyer and we know nicholas meyer knows the characters he knows the world you know, he has his kind of viewpoint on the world, but he, he knows like how to write these characters. So if we can come up with an idea, like he would be a great person to get. And then Nimoy wants to kind of slip Meyer back into the director's chair. So Nimoy calls Meyer and Meyer is just like, I, I just don't have any ideas. Because if you remember too, Meyer, when he came in on those previous two movies, he with he kind of basically rewrote both of those. Like, you know, with, with Wrath of Khan, he took in all of everybody's best ideas and created like a kind of conglomerate best script. And then, you know, he came in to, to, to showcase Nimoy's vision on the voyage home. So he was like, I just, I don't know where to take it. You know, I'm just not kind of thinking about that right now. So Nimoy's like, listen, let me come to your house. I have an idea I want to tell you. Like, let's, let's, like, let's meet on this. So Nimoy and Nimoy flies out to London um it, uh, was because Meyer was living in Europe at the time and they meet and have 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 lunch together and Nimoy gives Meyer his idea he basically says a sentence he's like what if the wall comes down in space the Klingons have always been our Russians and then before Nimoy can finish the sentence Meyer's eyes immediately light up and he's like yes wait oh my god so there's this big let's do a big intergalactic Chernobyl, right? No more Klingon Empire. Klingon Empire is dead. And then the entire story just spills from Meyer's guts. His mind is like into this idea. Because uh, Meyer as well is a big history nerd. You know, it, it kind of makes sense when you look at like sort of his, you know, his Sherlock Holmes stuff and uh, time after time. And even in you know, Voyage Home, like he's a big history guy. He likes like kind of using history and reflecting on history. And so he kind of sees he can kind of take elements from different periods of time and different peace treaties and different, you know, issues and, and the recent stuff with the actual fall of the Soviet Union. And he's just spilling out this story. And he kind of has this image of, you know, the, the chancellor, the Klingon chancellor Gorkhan and sort of his role in this assassination plot. So Meyer is immediately like, all right, I'm going to write this movie. Like, that's that's no doubt. I'm very passionate about this idea. And like with his previous works, gets out that script fairly quickly. He brings in another writer uh, named um, uh, uh, Denny Martin Flynn, and they kind of are corresponding with each other. Flynn is in America, so they would email, in the early days of email to each other, the script, Flynn would write kind of a big portion of it. Meyer would get like that and like kind of rewrite in his words. But at this point, Myers has no inclination that he's going to direct the movie. He's thinking like, okay, well, it's going to be like the voyage home. I'll turn it a script. I'll get paid. That's it. And finally, Myers, wife was like, dude, like you're extremely, you love this idea. You're extremely past. Like, why don't you direct it and showcase your vision? And Myers like, you know what? Yeah. I mean, I, I, hey, I don't mind doing this. I love this idea. 
I love getting paid for this idea. So let's do it. Let's sign on board. And Paramount's more than happy to get Meyer back because they know, again, like Nimoy, he was part of the two best reviewed Star Trek moves. And Nimoy is happy to have Meyer on board because um, Meyer, you know, it takes the directing uh, pressure off of his shoulders that he can just be Spock. Um, Nimoy's request to, um, you know, Meyer is just basically like they kind of work on the story together. You know, as you can see, uh, Nimoy actually has a story by credit in the final product and is actually a producer. But Nimoy, like, again, Nimoy knew that this was going to be a swan song for the original cast. So basically, he was like, give our crew most to do and kind of really capture that Spock character because he wanted to kind of play. In theory, this was going to be the last time he would ever play Spock. Obviously, we know that's not true. But this was the last time he ever would play Spock. So we wanted that to be like the Spock. And he wanted to make sure Spock was, you know, as true to the character as he's ever been, including like visually, it was kind of get later in the production, but he wanted to be like, let me like, let's do the ears exactly like they were on the original series. Let me like, look like Spock. Like Nimoy is very passionate about like, if we're going to make this a, a, the last movie with all these guys, let's kind of, let's go all out with these characters. Let's make sure that they give, have their moments. Um, so in terms of talking about the development of the script, I do want to kind of include the casting because there's some interesting sort of casting things um, that kind of involve the script. Um, so I'm going to start with some, uh, obviously our whole original crew is back um, in, in kind of different things. The original idea for the script was that they were all in retirement and then they were going to be pulled out from their retirement to get to that meeting at the beginning of the film like uh, in the original kind of draft, um, Sh uh, Kirk was remarried to um, his wife from uh, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, Uhura was hosting a radio show that she hated doing. Uh, Spock was on a, a classified assignment, stuff like that. Uh, Scotty was like teaching at Academy, all that sort of stuff. Um, but eventually, like Myers said that the biggest thing that they had to do deal with was the budget because the original budget was going to be proclaimed at 40 million paramount was like we're not doing the same mistake we did with the final frontier your budget is like 25 million dollars and that's it so they were able to kind of work within the confines they just had to kind of cut out some more exotic locations and some more kind of scenes to kind of make that work because they also knew from day one that they weren't going to make the same mistake on the voyage home as they or sorry on the undiscovered country as they did on the final frontier and they were as soon as they started production ilm you're back in we're, we're we want professionals on this so they had kind of a set budget and so meyer had to kind of work within that so anyways back to the casting i'm going to start with our klingons um we have uh, i want to start with david warner uh, as Gorkon, the uh, Klingon chancellor who initiates the peace talks within this movie. Um, David Warner actually was in the previous film, The Final Frontier. He had played the human federation representative on the Paradise Planet. Uh, and Meyer's whole thing with casting in this movie is that he wanted to get with people who were game for the material and that he wanted to work with. Because again, he'd never really got all the opportunities in the world to cast and direct. So he wanted to get people that he wanted to work with that would like really dig into the material. And he loved David Warner. And he thought that he could play a great Klingon. And the whole thing about Gorkon is even in the name, the, the character inspiration 
was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who was you know leading the Soviet Union at this time with the fall of the Soviet Union and kind of the wall crumbling down, you know, all that sort of stuff, the Iron Curtain disappearing, and Abraham Lincoln. And so Gorkhan is specifically Gorbachev and Lincoln put together. And Meyer was even so far as to make Gorkhan and make Warner look like Lincoln. You can kind of see the beard and sort of the, 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 the hair in terms of that. And, and also adding a little bit of Captain Ahab because Meyer just loves his literary history and his, and his real history. And of course, also we get Christopher Plummer in this movie as Chang, uh, a Klingon general with a affinity for Shakespeare. Um, and that was a thing where Plummer, once Plummer was cast in the role, Meyer was like, oh, like, let's put in as much Shakespeare as possible because he likes Shakespeare. Um, and he thought that Plummer would just eat that stuff up. And, and the, the co-writer Flynn was basically like, I thought at one point we were doing too much. And then as soon as I saw the dailies and I saw Christopher Plummer doing it, I was like, no, let's add like more. It was just working for the both of them. Uh, Plummer specifically requested less pronounced Klingon makeup because he wanted to still be able to like feel like he was emoting. He didn't want to be too bogged up in the makeup. And in fact, when he was uh, in the chair for the first day, he was supposed to have hair, but then they put on the makeup first and Plummer liked the look without hair so much that he said like, okay, no hair. This is, this is my look for the movie. Um, we also have, uh, a few returning names I uh, want to get out of the way. Uh, Brock Peters, uh, who had played Admiral Cartwright in The Voyage Home Returns uh, for this movie, playing the same general who has some issues with the Klingons. Uh, and also we do have a reappearance of Mark Leonard as Sarek uh, in this movie, uh, which is always very welcome. Uh, Inman uh, was uh, the Martia, um, the shapeshifter. And she was basically not really familiar with acting that much, but she was in a high-profile relationship with David Bowie. She was a famous fashion model. They kind of had the look that they were going for. She was kind of a big enough name where, you know, kind of worked out that she was kind of involved in the movie, that they had the kind of distinctive look for this kind of shapeshifter character. You know, again, someone that, you know, can kind of seduce Kirk while also still being a little mysterious. Um, but one of the biggest and most notable stories about the casting in this movie is the character of Valeris, who is eventually played by Kim Cattrall. Now, mm, mm. sorry, I don't know her. No, what? <laughs> who said? What'd you say? Kim, Kim Cattrall. I don't know who said that. I don't know who made that noise. <laughs> so the thing about the Valeris character is in... Meyer's original script and his original concept for the movie that was supposed to be Savick. That he was supposed to bring Savick back because he thought it would be this big deal that this character that we know eventually, spoiler alert, betrays the crew and, and kind of has this fear of the future. And every turn from basically everybody disagreed with this. Nimoy thought it was a bad idea. Shatner thought it was a bad idea. And most notably, Gene Roddenberry thought it was a bad idea. Now, Gene Roddenberry is very focused on the next generation, but he's still kind of involved with this movie. And 
he basically fights Meyer at almost every turn. There's a famous meeting that they have where they go through the script line by line, and Ron Barry basically points out every single thing he hates about it. But one of their biggest points of contention on this movie was the character of Savick being this betrayer because Ron Barry originally didn't like the character of Savick, but he was smart enough to know what the fans liked. And the fans like Savick. They still were very respectful of the Savick character. She still had notability from her appearance in Wrath of Khan and even her less popular appearance in The Search for Spock by Robin Wright. Like that still was, um, you know, very well regarded by fans just from the character perspective. So Ron Barry just said to like Meyer, like, it's just a bad idea to turn this fan favorite character into a villain, essentially, to turn her into an antagonist. And uh, Meyer's response was, well, you didn't create the character. I created the character. I can do whatever I want with this character. It's my character. And eventually, the person that convinces uh, Meyer not to go through with the uh, Savic character in this movie is Kim Cattrall herself. Because for Meyer, he was not interested in Robin Wright coming back. And uh, Chrissy Alley was nowhere near interested in coming back. Not with the money she was making on Cheers. Absolutely not. So he, but so Meyer had carte blanche to work who he wanted to work with, and he wanted to work with Kim Cattrall because he had liked her in Big Trouble in Old China. She had been like kind of an up and coming star through the 80s. And Kim Cattrall was like, well, listen, like I was one of the auditioners, I, I auditioned for Savic long ago, and I'm, I'm interested in this role. I like this betrayer character. I like playing the Vulcan, but I don't want to be the third Savic. I don't want to be compared to these other two characters and these other two actresses. I, if I'm going to be in this movie, I want to be my own character. And Meyer thought that he would rather work with Cattrall more than he was passionate about keeping the Savic character. So to the, the, the point where uh, Meyer let Cattrall name the new Vulcan character. And so she came up with Val Eris, which is based on Eris, the Greek God of strife, I believe. Um, and just because she thought it would be very nice to the movie. There's also an urban legend that Kim Cattrall did a nude photo shoot on the set of this movie in her Vulcan ears and like Nimoy caught it and like destroyed the footage, but both Nimoy and Cattrall deny that ever happening. It, it basically is just an urban legend. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds sus. Uh, the finish up casting, we do get a connection with the next generation. Michael Dorn, who plays um, Warf. Yes, on- yes on the next generation comes in to play his ancestor who is an attorney that defends Kirk and McCoy at the trial of Klingon, um, which he was very excited to kind of do because he was like the one person on the next generation that would have been very into doing the movie because Worf was basically like his thing. And he loved playing Worf. He loved playing Klingons. And he thought it was like a really neat connection between the two. And just because there's really, I, I mean, we could save it for the movie. I do want to mention this now. We do get a brief cameo appearance by one Christian Slater uh, in this movie, who is, by all accounts, a huge Star Trek nerd. Okay, so I will say this, because since you're already kind of mentioning it at this yeah. point, this was one of those, like, so first of all, like, the Kim Cattrall appearance was like, I was like, oh, Kim Cattrall's in this. But the biggest one that blew my mind was I'm casually watching this movie. I'm laid out on my couch 
and I'm watching it. And then I, and I'm like looking down, doing something and I hear a voice and I'm like, is that? And I look up and it's fucking Christian Slater. In a yeah. Star Trek movie. I'm like what? So obviously Slater had been sort of, he had done Heather's by this point. Like he had, he was like kind of an up and coming actor. Um, but he was a huge Star Trek nerd. Like he had dressed as Spock when he was younger. Like he said, he had shaved his eyebrows to be like the proper Spock. And his mom was the casting director on this movie. So his mom, Mary Jo Slater was like, we have this like one kind of small speaking role. Like you want to play it son. And he was like, please like, let me do whatever. Uh, The crew surprised him by presenting him as part of his costume uh, the pants that Shatner wore on um, Wrath of Khan, which he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be in the captain's pants uh, as a kind of a joke. Uh, and he never cashed his check for the movie. He, he, his cat, his check for $750, he immediately framed. So basically he was like, I, I would, I would do the Star Trek movie for me. It's very important that I do this movie. I'm in a Star Trek movie. I'm in Star Trek canon. It still hangs on this wall to this day. Um, but yeah, so, uh, obviously there was, in terms of the production, one of the things that was very notable about saving the budget for this movie is essentially all the ship sets, uh, all the Federation ship sets, uh, the Excelsior and the Enterprise A are the next generation sets just redressed. Uh, cause they, they didn't want to spend the money. They, they're trying to save budget wherever they can. They're like, well, if we have these sets that, you know, the, the series is on break, you know, for their between seasons, they're not using them. We'll just dress them up to look like a little bit of, um, uh, uh, you know, the kind of older school ships a little bit, you know, still make that connection between the two series, but basically everything that you see, in terms of the ship stuff for the Federation is all next generation stuff. And in fact, if you look, if you know the next generation and you look closely, you can definitely tell like what sets are, which like, for example, like the dining room scene is very clearly in kind of the meeting room where like the next generation would have like their big meetings. Um, You know, uh, Kirk's quarters are like, you know, share with Picard's quarters, stuff like that. Like there's very much like you can tell what the similarities are. Um, and so there's a lot of that. And Meyer was also very much like, again, this was kind of the most in control he ever was of a Star Trek. And he was very much like, I kind of want to make the hallways a little darker. I want to kind of give a much more claustrophobic feel actually taking a lot of inspiration from the hunt for red October, which had released in, you know, the production year of this movie that he kind of wanted to look more kind of like, the claustrophobia of an old school submarine movie or, you know, the recent Jack Ryan epic Hunt for Red October, because he felt that that created more drama, drama, as well as, you know, when they're doing this big investigation, there's kind of a lot more of that, like dramatic need for, for that um, as well. So he brings on uh, his cinematographer, Hiro Nanta, who had just finished shooting the Rocketeer, and Hanada said that, uh, sorry, uh, Narita, uh, Hiro Narita, he said that his challenge was he came from the Rocketeer, which was he had the budget to make this big period fantasy. Now he was coming in to be like, we're shooting on these TV sets and we can't really change stuff. 
and we need to make it look like this on a budget. But he kind of really took Meyer's direction for the lighting and for kind of the look of the movie. And Meyer said, like, listen, like, don't behold yourself to what any other Star Trek production looks like. Like, make it your production. Let's kind of work on this lighting together. So, again, kind of trying to kind of keep stuff going. Um, this was the most amount of Klingon makeup they ever had to do. So there was a lot of attention to making the main Klingons look really good and then kind of spending a lot less time on the background Klingons or like kind of the, the extra Klingons kind of making sure that they never were on screen too much to make it look like kind of their costumes. Um, Mark Orkrin comes back to do the new language stuff for the, the Klingons which he had issues with because at one point they say to be or not to be in Klingon and Orkrin had said that he had not come up with like the to be verb in Klingon yet because like it was just the way that they talked. He never had like to be. So he kind of had to rearrange the language a little bit to make it work, to make Shakespeare work Mm -hmm. in Klingon. Speaking of the Shakespeare, I also do want to mention this at one point uh, Spock says, my ancestor once said that, you know, if you will, if you, eliminate the possible then only the possible impossible remains Meyer has said that that's a very distinctive and personal reference to the original person who who said that which is Sherlock Holmes and connecting Spock to the Sherlock Holmes character was kind of actually a very important thing to him especially with Myers's personal history of um using Holmes in that uh so Meyer, again, took a lot of very specific inspiration from history, not just from, um, from the recent fall of the, the, the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall and everything like that. He took inspiration, some elements of Germany pre-World War II and post-World War II, taking some stuff from the Civil Rights Movement, taking some stuff from the Civil War. Like he basically was trying to make this very much like kind of you know, using history in hopes to kind of make his point in the movie and sort of kind of combining all these little elements of different moments of time and moments of peace and moments of revolutions and moments of kind of racial strife to like really kind of bring home this kind of idea of the Klingons, you know, coming into the Federation, which, you know, was something that had to happen per the next generation. And even, you know, Meyer's whole thing about it was that, well, Roddenberry had this great optimism of just like, oh, in the future, there's not going to be racial conflict and sexism and, and stuff like that. But, the, you know, his optimism never really fit like what was on screen, because, yes, there is kind of this very diverse crew. And so we kind of know that, but they still have these issues with the Klingons and the, they are still very hostile towards the Klingons, even in the original series and even what we've seen. So his whole point was like, no, like we there's no proof that this will just disappear in the future so let's kind of confront it head on that in a different way you know we need to do this though some of the actors on set had issues with sort of really showcasing this through the script brock peters as admiral cartwright had that has that kind of big kind of you know speech at the beginning about why they shouldn't trust the klingons and he said that basically as a minority actor that he had to do that in like three takes that he couldn't get it all in one. It was very difficult for him to do. And Nichelle Nichols also refused to make a guess who's coming to dinner joke uh, because she was also very uncomfortable with sort of that stuff. <laughs> um, 
so there was kind of a lot of sort of haggling with 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 Meyer, but Meyer felt that he was able to kind of get a lot of the stuff and a lot of the point across in the movie. Um, but the other, the last thing, sort of the mention here, um, is the fact that they do bring back industrial light and magic to the fold because again, this is this big presentation of the last series and they had all the issues on the last one with using a different production company. And they're like, you know what, let's use these guys that know us. Um, they still had to kind of reuse a lot of the models from the previous films just for budgeting reasons. But the big effect of the movie in many people's eyes was the explosion of Praxis, the moon of Klingon at the beginning of the movie. And the ILM team took a lot of inspiration from the original Poseidon adventure and the big wave in that movie and sort of had this big sort of wavy explosion that kind of, you know, comes out of the planet, which would go on to be known as the Praxis effect. It would become a very big staple of um, sci-fi explosions to the point where the Praxis effect was reused in the special Star Wars editions later down the line for the explosion of Alderaan and the first Death Star. Um, so they kind of reused it when they did those special editions. Uh, I, I guess I should say the last real thing about the movie um, is this was a very emotional movie uh, for the original cast. Uh, and there was a lot of sort of mixed emotions about this because, you know, Paramount was like very clear that this was going to be the last original series movie. And it, by the time that the production started, the fans knew, the cast knew, everybody knew that this was it, that there was no more going back. And a lot of sort of the emotions of being involved with these movies and being involved with these characters for so long kind of came to a head. Um whether it be sort of like, again, Nimoy really coming to terms with himself as Spock and, you know, a guy who was very much at the beginning of this, you know, really considering I don't want to be Spock anymore. It's defined me to being, no, this does define me. And this is something that's important to me. And I want to make this work um, to the big feud between um, Shatner and, uh, George Takai coming to a head as well because Takai in his autobiography has said that the end, the big kind of thing at the end of the movie where they helped destroy the, the enemy Klingon ship was supposed to be Sulu's big moment. And he was very happy that Sulu finally got a ship. And there's this big, you know, thing about Sulu kind of being this captain. But, you know, the whole thing is that these exploring gases at the beginning of the movie and then, you know, he's supposed to be like, oh, like we're carrying the gas equipment. We can use this to track the ship. That was originally apparently supposed to be Sulu's moment. But then Shatner, again, was sort of worried about Kirk and worried about himself and sort of convinced Paramount and Meyer that like, no, if this is the last movie, it needs to be Kirk that makes that big moment. It needs to be the Enterprise that makes that big moment. And so... Takai and Shatner for a long time were not on speaking terms because uh, Takai felt that Shatner had taken away his moment to taken away the one moment that he really had in like this movie or any other movie, though eventually down the line, they would kind of make things work out. Um, and then like even the final scene of the movie, uh, Meyer changed it on the last day on the last minute to be a lot more optimistic than it originally was. It was a lot more somber scene, but, but everybody said Maya was in a very good mood that day. And there was a lot of emotion 
um, and a lot of mixed emotion and a lot of sort of anxiousness about the future for these actors. Um, Cause many of them, again, were only doing these Trek movies at this point in time. And like Shatner and Nimoy would be okay, but like, you know, the Nichelle Nichols and the George Takai's and the Walter Kennings, like they were, they were a little worried about what the future held for them down the line. Uh, though DeForest Kelly was very clear that this would basically be it for him as an actor, that this would be his last role. And uh, uh, James Duhon also essentially retired from acting at this point. So a lot of emotions were running high as, as this was, you know, the end of an era for many of the Star Trek crew. Yeah. All right. So we can get into Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and figure out how this saga comes to an end. We volunteered. There is an old Vulcan proverb. Only Nixon could go to China. How could you vouch for me? That's arrogant presumption. My father requested that I open negotiations. I know your father's the Vulcan ambassador, for heaven's sake. But you know how I feel about this. They're animals, Jim. There is an historic opportunity here. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. They are dying. Let them die. Has it occurred to you that this crew is due to stand down in three months? We've done our bit for king and country. You should have trusted me. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the third Star Trek film involving Nicholas Meyer, the end of this original series cast being all together in a film. It's, it's been so fun revisiting this entire original series run for me, not just going back, you know, when I went back to even rewatching the original series, right at the beginning, sort of as a, as a preview to all of this, but going through each of these movies has been a really fun time. And it's, it's, it is sort of an emotional means that yes, we will see these characters and some of these actors again down the road, but this is really sort of the end of this era of Trek that I hold so close to my, my chest now, uh, even as kind of a late comer into Trek, this is my era. This is the original series and these characters, this is my era. And so even revisiting the undiscovered country and being like, this is the last time we get to hang out with all these characters together. There is kind of an emotional punch for me uh, going into it. Uh, especially just because like, just how good these actors have been, how fun these movies have been. And even like rediscovering, you know, like, you know, going into like what I love about the motion picture, you know, talking about sort of that, or that, core trilogy that I've said is like one of my favorite trilogies ever. And then even like rediscovering five and just kind of loving these characters and falling in love with them even more than I already did. And I think they go out with, with a bang here because I, I, I think that this movie like really, this movie really takes off at one point and just never lets go. And there's so much uniqueness and fun and interestingness into this movie. The performances are still great the sort of message and the characters and the plot is so interesting and in some ways still timely. And I, I just really like, like the way that this movie turned out. I really think it, it's another hit for the Star Trek franchise. Yeah. Um, 
what's so funny about it is that it really sneaks up on you as kind of like it, it, it is funny because I mentioned I mentioned the MCU earlier. And to a certain degree, I, I, I empathize with maybe a certain sect of fans being tired of things being compared with the MCU. But I mean, but it's in the same way that you would compare. Th- I mean, you know, it's like, let's get over it. It's, it's the same mm-hmm. way in which it's a entertainment touchstone in the same way that Trek is and the same way that Star Wars is and the same way that Bond is and all the time. So you're going to hear me say that. So get over it. But it, it is funny, like when as you and I, Nick, being MCU fans, it's funny because in the in the era of not even the MCU, it's in the era of just modern technology and modern social media and model and modern awareness of everything going on is like there was a level with modern franchises that you kind of know when the end is going to be like, you know, when the culmination event movies are, you know, like kind of what the intention is. And it's kind of funny that even in retrospect with movies that have already been out to kind of binge these movies and the last movie of the era kind of just sneaks up on you (laughs) and how somebody like Nicholas Meyer, who has brought excellent work to the Star Trek franchise is able to kind of make a film that you know, you kind of are, you you don't really suspect that the movies have been leading up to this moment, but at least is able to craft a film that is geniusly able to wrap up thematically what most of these movies have been doing. So that was kind of like the surreal element of watching this film was, because in many ways it, it, it does kind of, it feels like a fitting end to everything that has led up to this. I mean, even in talking about these films, you've heard several times about like, oh, they're teasing the Klingon stuff. They're teasing the Klingon stuff. It's like, oh, there's so much Klingon stuff. And then you get to this movie, which is ultimately like how all that wraps up. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was definitely a rewarding element of watching it. Um, One of the things for me that I found out about 15 minutes in is that this was a rewatch for me which I forgot that I had seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 15 minutes in, I realized like, oh, I had watched this with you previously. Yeah. And that a lot of it had come back to memory more so than I thought. And and ultimately, how I feel about the movie is that the beginning is very good, the ending is excellent, and the middle is okay. Mm-hmm. And that's how that's how I ultimately feel about the movie. Um, I know, and it's really funny, especially talking about this and uh, um, the previous film, where it is funny that like this is the film that a lot of people consider like, oh, they got back on track. And it is funny to find myself in the position where like I actually did like that previous film quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I am put in a position of where for a lot, for a long time while watching this film, I was like, oh, I don't know. I may have preferred, you know, uh, the previous film. But what I will say is that at the end of the day, it ends on an excellent note. Like this, this Star Trek film has a really, really strong third act and an ending. Yeah. And, and none of it is bad. Like it, it wasn't, but 
one of the things that was interesting about it, because I knew this was a rewatch, I, I you could be a little bit more critical about like what rewatching it is like. Yeah. And that's kind of where I stood is like the beginning is really good. The ending is excellent. And the middle is is OK. Yeah. Uh, one of the things you touched on just briefly there before we kind of get further is like how this movie sort of you know, Meyer is able to take a lot of the elements that were kind of building in these previous films and to bring it finally to kind of a head. And I, I, I think one of the most rewarding things about doing all these movies in a row as part of this podcast and like really talking about them is really getting that sense of like everything that's kind of what this movie has been building towards and like how there's little bits of like all the other movies. Like you get like, you know, you get the really, you know, we get to revisit the death of Kirk's son from Star Trek three we bring characters back from like the voyage home and bring them in new contexts. Even like the gravity boots from the previous film come back into play in this movie. Like it's kind of really impressive that like all, every basically everything other than the first motion picture is like brought back some way in this movie in terms of like kind of wrapping up sort of these. Well, no, characters. even in the even in the first picture at the beginning of the movie they get attacked by a giant space. Event. yes yeah that, that's kind of like kind of yeah, yeah fair yeah, enough yeah, yeah, yeah uh but it, it's just it's just really kind of interesting to really see that this is kind of like this really was even as kind of like maybe not planned out as some other franchises have been uh especially in recent years that there is sort of like an ongoing narrative that really like comes to a head here in terms of like the end of our star trek crew the original Enterprise crew, I should well, say. I mean, it, I mean, it ultimately shows that even if you don't plan things out, because I, I think that from both sides of the argument, there can be a bad faith approach to the whole planning a franchise out. I, yes. Because I think that there is a level of you. Things can be planned out, but you can also retroactively make something while also honoring what mm -hmm. came before right and i don't mean in like the the kind of bullshit honoring of like you gotta like you respect the source material like in the way like in a bad faith way but in a way like that this film at least feels like you know a person is coming in and acknowledging like the story that has been been told up until then and writes a story that does its own thing but at least wraps up and feels uh in like that feels consistent with everything that's come before it yes like yeah, yeah. i mean like at the end of the day the fact that this movie centers around the klingon like uh federation like peace treaty conflict is a pretty genius move because yeah. it actually it you know it's something that has been in the background of all the films so for it to finally take place front and center and to be it to be the the core conflict of the film and not in a surface level way, but in a more meaningful way about like what is the next what is the next generation of the yeah. of the of the of the franchise. Right. It is very it is actually pretty brilliant. Yeah. And I think it's like super cool too that like it, it is a gap. It is a bridge. It is a way without doing the crossover specifically, it is a way to bridge what happens in the next generation. Cause we know that it like because it's like what I kind of like a lot is that, you know, I was kind of doing research. It's like one, of course, we know Worf and like the Feder the Klingons are in the Federation by the time of the next generation. So that's a very obvious one. Yeah. But even to the point where like 
where the Klingon, where the final peace treaty happens is actually already been established as kind of a, a Klingon outpost in the next generation. So they kind of bring that planet in too. There's a, they do kind of, there is just like, again, like you can tell that there is a respect and a love for the material from multiple sides here. Like even if Meyer, like, you know, has this kind of slightly more cynical look at track and, you know, isn't necessarily as like, you know, not to like hold it as in deep respect as like maybe other people would, he still has a great respect for these characters and for this uh, world. I, um, now, I don't know, maybe you're bringing in, like, and in, in you, you could be right, but I, I'm going to push back on one thing about that. I, and he may have in his personal life, but one of the best things about Meyer in the, in the Star Trek films, I am very sensitive to cynicism brought to a franchise. Yeah. Like, I'm very critical of that. Um. And one of the things that I have been always respectful about Myers is that he's not a super Star Trek fan or like at least, and and I think when people say like, you're not a fan, it means you don't like it. But like, I think there is a level of like, you know, you're not approaching it as like a diehard who knows the material and like you're, you're reverent to everything, but in no way, shape or form do I ever get the sense that there is a, not liking of the source material and yeah. what he does. There's definitely not. And I think that that's the thing where I think even Meyer kind of like fallen back. Like, I think people have read more into his comments about him, like not being a fan more than he actually is. I kind of, what I mean is that like, obviously there's just a comparison of like the super optimism of like Roddenberry and like kind of the idealism that he had. And I think that what Meyer does is that he, he loves, I think he really does love these characters and loves the world and it has fallen into track, but also does have this sort of healthy, like, you know, we can take things a slight step down from like the super duper optimistic and kind of showcase still a little well, bit he, of the grittiness of the world but he, that exists. He has this healthy thing where he's just like, he is not going to be slavish to what Star Trek should be, but he actually respects the stories and the characters that have been told yes it's exactly like, what as, i mean as yeah. a storyteller he's not going to be respect it, it's a difference between if you're a roland emmerich with godzilla michael bay to transformers or a todd phillips with joker like it's like those are films in my honest opinion in my humble opinion rather that feel like people who are cynical of the source material and therefore like are trying to course correct it in some way. Myers material never feels like that. Yes. And feels like, and, and, and at the most feels like he's just trying to tell a different type of movie within that world. Mm -hmm. So within Khan, he's telling kind of like this naval um, seafaring space epic type yes. of film. And in this, and, and in this film, what I've noticed and one of the criticisms I, I in, in movies now that I know that you know that I kind of eye roll at and, and I kind of eye roll. It, it's just such an easy criticism to lay about the whole like you can never make a film like this these days. Like and I feel like that's an easy that's a crutch. That's a yeah. crutch of a criticism. Like sometimes it's true, but it, it often is a crutch of a criticism. But one of the things that is it, it, it does rear its head in this film is that ultimately this film is a political thriller. Mm -hmm. Like it, 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 you know, it has some set pieces, but it really 90% of the film is like, they're trying to do a peace treaty. It goes wrong. And then all the parties are trying to figure out how to correct it. 
and the third act is about presenting an about preventing an assassination. Yeah, there, there's a lot more connection to like like Jack Ryan here yes. than there is. Oh to, yeah, like, yeah. And, and, and then and, there and, is to like you know uh, other Trek stuff sometimes. Yeah. And, and now I think the only difference I like, I actually do think you could make this movie today. I think that maybe you do have maybe have to have a little bombast yeah like a little bit more probably has to have a little bit more explosions nowadays and that's a different conversation but one i did thoroughly enjoy the fact that this was more in line with like maybe like a jack ryan movie Mm -hmm. where it's like there was some there were some set pieces but it mostly was about like there's an assassination plot and how do we fix it or how do we prevent it and the fun little mac, mac, machinations uh, in, in between. I mean, I think you just mentioned it too, but like, I think what's also very impressive about Meyer's Trek work is the fact that all three of the movies he involved in are very different. Like you said, like the first one is sort of this uh, classic kind of submarine, you know, in space sort of thing with the big like battle and big drama and a big death. Then when he writes The Voyage Home, it's a very silly time travel comedy. It's like, got yeah. like very silly stuff and it's about saving whales and like it's very again over like not over the top but like just very silly and very funny and then yeah in this one it's very much the political thriller with like elements of again real world history kind of splattered into it that like you know kind of is timely for the time but also is timely to trek and i i just think like it's super impressive that meyer is able to mine so many different types of emotions and, and but, moments out of these three movies that he's involved in you you know it's like kind of ironic though is that something like um uh then I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the previous movie that i liked uh, final frontier uh, final frontier final frontier to me actually reminds me more of a classic episode of trek right yeah we talked and about that last that, time yeah and then people are actually way more critical of that mm-hmm. one so it's actually kind of funny um but yeah, but when it so I, I do want to kind of jump to this point of view because you kind of mentioned it in the in the in the making of is that so this whole kind of business with Kim Cattrall, mm, I'm gonna like just follow up with Kim Cattrall, mm, like because it's Kim Cattrall, um, but like Kim Cattrall, like you know her whole character betraying everybody, like yeah. being the betrayer. Spoiler alert. And that was kind of like a point of contention with some of like the Trek initiated, right? Is that kind of what you were saying? Well, yeah, I mean, that there was going to be like Savic originally. And so that's where the point of contention was. Got it, got and it, then, yeah. and then the fact that like they made it an original character, like you could definitely tell there's some elements of it that could have just, you know, been translated to it being Savic, but there was a lot less issue with it once it was its original character so here was funny because like for a good amount of the time i'm like well this could have just been savik until this key revelation of who they are yeah and then you realize that they're the the you know they they are they're part of the conspiracy yeah they're part of the conspiracy but the way in which the conspiracy unveils itself is a very inspired kind of dirty aspect to the star trek franchise but ultimately pivots its way into something that is very star trek so i think that like what i'm trying to say is like often what i when i hear about people talking about star trek is like people love their star trek but at times like and this is not even star trek i like 
we've been we we talked a little bit about this even off off camera a little bit with other fandoms being MCU fandoms, DC fandoms, like Star Trek fandoms, whatever or Star Wars fandoms, whatever. Is that fandoms at the end of the day, even though they claim to want like interesting things, they also want it very clean. They want mm -hmm. very clean things from the content of the fandom of the thing that they're a fan of. Mm -hmm. And and in this film, it gets a little dirty. It gets a little dirty that, like, you know, that there's a lot of people who, whether they're Vulcans or whatnot, are doing some shady shit that want to do. But because of that, it's able to highlight through Kirk, Spock, and the rest of the crew the actual things that you love about Star Trek. So the story is ultimately, like, Kirk is a guy who does not love the Klingons, and he is opposed to this peace treaty between the Federation and the Klingons. And then what the brilliant part about this movie is, is that, oh no, Kirk, you thought you didn't like the Klingons, but no, actually what you don't realize, and this is kind of part of your arc, is that you are actually a really good person. <laughs> Like, I love when arcs are like, actually, no, you are a good person because there are people who will do far worse things about your own convictions. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's what makes you like, I love the complex. Like, this is like the most human thing you can do with a character is to show that they have these kind of very dirty convictions, but they are able to move past them and grow past them despite despite what they think. And the real villains are people who can't. And then ultimately it create it, it, it manifests in a story where, I mean, it's even like said in the dialogue of, of one of the scenes is like, I forget the exact dialogue, but he's like, I thought this way, but I actually didn't think like people thought about it even worse than I did. Yeah. And it, it ultimately results in a way that like not in, and, and it, what I like about it is that it's not even the main characters. Like the horror of it is like, these are all like the red shirts and other people that you didn't even think had any sway over the story. Yeah. That's like actually a actual... very, in, that's a very interesting point. Like, yeah. It, it's even... like all these no names are the people who can influence the turn of the century way more than Kirk Spock or any of the main characters. Yeah. Right. It's like, a, like they mentioned like many times, like this is a turning point in history. Right. And, and the fact that like, yeah, there is just kind of this conspiracy and like who's involved you're very much right it is kind of like it's a very interesting point and i think yeah. it's like a combination of again like characters we've kind of seen characters are just being introduced to and background characters all can kind of conspire to like you know really make a mess of this kind of whole situation and and, and it is nuanced too like one of the things i did like about it was that nobody in this movie was dumb mm. like i really like that like that like even in like you know because there's like this whole thing where there's there's some sort of assassination attempt they don't know exactly what it is but it would be very easy for a character in another movie to be like well they clearly did this and like this is what's dumb and there are characters like that but there's always another character to counteract it being like well we we don't love that you know our ambassador died and this person probably should be held accountable for that, but they may not have done it. And we have a peace treaty on the talk. So let's try to like, you know, find a middle ground with that. And I, I just yeah. like that. The fact that there was, there was a, 
they just really found a very a very sensible way of dealing with the plot that they were dealing with and yeah. i really appreciated that yeah i think we can start getting into sort of that plot and i think a lot of that sort of nuance will come out as we really dig into what the movie is about and one of the honestly one of the more striking things is like the opening credits of this movie have the, the kind of this more that doesn't have kind of the traditional like big star trek fanfare that these other movies have had the score that opens this movie is is like kind of very sort of almost dark and dour to a point and then eventually throughout the movie you kind of get the kind of more heroic kind of emotional theme but like you right away you kind of get this feeling that there's something that's slightly different here which i kind of like and that leads into from the opening credits into us going on to the excelsior now led by captain sulu uh also an appearance by uh janice rand which i appreciated because really getting into that 25th anniversary stuff but we get into this big thing with the Excelsior. Sulu is on his like first assignment. It's been like th- three years since like the previous film that they've been searching out like gases. Like it's a very like low assignment for Sulu, but he's just happy to have the Excelsior, which again is a, something I really just a little bits of continuity that I like is that Sulu from the first moment the Excelsior is brought up has always been like that's like. Now that's a ship. Like he's not as beholden to the Enterprise as everybody else. He's like, that's a ship right there. And I like that he finally got his like time to be a captain. Well, one of the things I did like about this film is like it's kind of like a stealth final film in a, in yeah. a way because you know it. You know there was a sense of when I first started watching it where I'm like, oh man, like it, you know it, it's cool to see Sulu is a is in charge of his own ship. Um, but you you can't help but feel it's like a way of like you know he's not part of the the main cast and the crew anymore but then as the film goes on not only do you see that he actually has way more of a pivotal role than you thought and like he is involved in like key moments of the plot but it also keeps sulu involved in a very mature way that keeps the story going and fits into this whole theme of like this is the final transition of like the crew going on to a different journey and and i and i and i like that it 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 keeps the energy and the fandom and the spirit of what we like about these films but in this crew but keeping it mature because it's like of course like it's like there is something nice about the fact that Sulu did like find his way to be a captain of a different ship. Like right. it's just like at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it, it really is good to see. It's a nice character evolution. And again, like, again, something that's been sort of teased that it's something he wants to do like in these movies that he just likes the Excelsior and that that's a passion that he will have. Um, So as they're doing this uh, exploration of gaseous planets, they've just, finish this sort of you know gaseous anomalies i should say and they're like he's doing his captain's log and he's you know enjoying some tea when all of a sudden there's a big shaking and this tea falls down and they're they're trying to figure out something they see this big wave of kind of energy and dust and everything like come towards them brace for impact everybody does the star trek thing where they kind of fall over and they eventually figure out that the point of origin of this is one of the moons of Kronos, which is the Klingon homeworld, uh, Praxis. And when they, they're like, well, I've located where Praxis should be, but I don't think it's there. 
and then they kind of do the zoom in and they they see that Praxis has sort of been, you know, basically like blown up and half destroyed. And again, a nice moment from Sulu where even though that's again, there's sort of this issue right now between the, the, the traditional issue between the Federation and the Klingons that Sulu still puts out the like, we have just detected, you know, Klingon Empire, we've just detected a an issue on your planet, on your moon Praxis. If you need any help evacuating or any assistance, we are here to help you. And eventually the Klingons responds like there has been an incident on Praxis, um, but we do not need any help at this time. Follow the plan, follow the treaty, stay out of the neutral zone, Klingon out. And then great, great little moment. There's like incident. And then they're like, should we report this, sir? Like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, absolutely. Uh, and then we cut to a couple months later, actually. Uh, where our crew has been sort of called out of their 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 time. They're about to be decommissioned and about to go on retirement when they're called into this top secret meeting. And and of course, like Spock's not there where Spock Federation officers come through. Spock is, you know, comes through in a very dramatic way where he's like, you know, presenting the actual contents of the meeting which is that basically two months ago the moon of praxis exploded likely due to overmining and and very little safety regulations it's caused the klingon uh ozone layer to be irradiated and essentially they have 50 years of life on the planet before their oxygen runs out and their chancellor chancellor gorkon has come to the federation with talks in mind of a peace treaty that would fold the klingons into the federation and the reaction to this in the room is not good. Now, now, if you can just clarify that, because this was like kind of like a plot point that I, I was a little bit fuzzy on. So the idea is, is that Klingon, they will basically go into the fold of the Federation. Yes. They will peace, whole peace treaty, the whole deal. And that the Federation will basically... Like what? Like they will like kind of like an armistice to mil to militarize themselves. Essentially, because like, like the the one thing that they have like a military type of thing for, they have bases all along the neutral zone. Just because it's like okay, well, we are at odds with the Klingons, and there is kind of a thing. And so, in theory, you know, they wouldn't maybe totally stand down because there are unknown worlds out there. But essentially, like they are the Klingons are their biggest potential foe. Like again, mm -hmm. it's kind of the U.S. versus the Russia theft, where it's like. I mean, if we fold into it, then basically all our stations on the neutral, there would be no more neutral zone. There would be no more need for those kind of stations on the neutral zone that we would, you know, not a total disarmament, you know, disarming of everybody, but basically like we are, we would be at a time of like no need for that stuff as much. Well, yeah, because like then like, you know, other generals are all, all like, well, you know, and obviously like they're kind of, motivations become clear as like the story goes on but like the idea is like well like you're gonna let like our sworn enemies into like you're gonna let the fox into the hen house and then we're gonna be defenseless and then like right what are you, and it's like gonna do and is it basically like well this is you know they'll they'll come in and they'll sneak attack us but this is our time to really like laid in on them that all this strife they've caused us and all the like issues we've had with them like we can just basically end it here and now and then have better negotiations on a treaty right and right. and then you know kirk even kirk is just basically like listen like i know the klingons can't be trusted like 
I've dealt with them. So it's, I've got to, you know, it's like, I, I, I have to unfortunately agree with, with way with Admiral Peters here that like, we, you know, we, we should take a second thought on this. Well, well there, there's two things that is like, really, it's really funny and interesting. Uh, and one is part of the, the, the thing I was looking forward to the most of the movie was the very Kirk, uh, his response to, because the whole thing is like Spock basically, um, uh like uh volunteer volunteer them. volunteers him to be like what like the captain who helps be like one of the ambassadors uh between like the peace talks and you know kirk's not having it and he you know he he doesn't love the klingons and one of the best lines where he's like you know well this is you know like spock's like trying to be like listen like this is what they're saying and kirk's like don't believe them and these <laughs> are and there was another line and then my favorite one he's like He's like, he's like, but they will die. Let them die. <laughs> Which love it. Like, I, like that was like the one thing I was waiting in this movie for. Like, it was just such like a, like a great acting moment. Yeah. But uh, the second part I was gonna say is like, it leads to the 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 big conflict of the film is like if you follow the the like the lore up until this part, what's interesting from an audience perspective is that you know Kirk is right, like, to a certain degree. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, there are lessons about that you can't paint one, like, you know, the individual of a few as, like, the as like the actions of an entire species. But you have, like, it, from us as viewers, we've only seen the Klingons be hostile, like, yeah. a hostile party. Going back all the way to the original series with the, with the non-makeup Klingons, like like the only time they've ever been really presented in like a great like not a great light but like kind of a more neutral light is the beginning of the motion picture where they're just attacked by the Viger cloud right but like every uh, yeah but like when you go to Star Trek 3 where they're trying to steal the Genesis device and they kill Kirk's son Star Trek 4 where they're trying to basically blame Kirk as a war criminal for like stuff that you know kind of twisting the way that Kirk has been presented and then the last film five where like the, the one Klingon captain is just basically obsessed with like, if I kill Kirk, I will be like a hero to my people. Like, yeah, no, don't wait, like it's Kirk like, and the you... Kirks don't like Klingon. The Kirks don't like Klingon. And they're, you're very much right that like from Kirk's perspective and from our audience perspective, it is a very truthful thing, but I think it also very much again, functions in the same way that like almost from that real world perspective, again, the very big inspiration of relations between United States and the Soviet Union at this point, because in that same way, like, you know, as an American, you were just basically always taught that like, hey, no, the Soviet Union, they're the bad guys, they're the bad guys. And all of a sudden, like, wait, we're going to be on the same side now. Like, there's kind of like, there is just a little bit of a, whoa, step back here. And I think like the way that this film initially presents Kirk is that, yes, there is kind of like a, an instinct where it's like, well, maybe he shouldn't be like, you know this way but like there is every explanation of why he feels that way oh well the, the the saving grace is because you could have easily made this film as like like what comes to mind as like the scrolls how they treated the scrolls and captain marvel where it's mm -hmm. like you know you could have easily have done the whole like oh well actually Sure, they may have done bad things, but they're they're just victims of circumstance, and they're they actually, even though they will own up to their bad things, they're actually good guys. But 
what the the angle they went is with you know um what's his name david warner with da- david warner klingon that, yeah, that, uh, gorkhan yeah yeah like with him like there is like a very like honest moment when he's like you don't trust us do you and then he's like and kirk doesn't say anything and even and even he's like i get it yeah it's like yeah no we well, we we have not yeah. been the greatest right. and, and <laughs> like, it's like you know it's like, awesome. like it's, it's it's so and, and but that makes you engage with yeah. it in a much more human way and and gorkhan is very much like you know again is very realist where it's like if we are to enter this brave new world, it's our generations that are going to be the have the hardest Ooh, time accepting it. Love that line. That line love is love that line. That line is incredible and still like is so powerful and so resonates. Still. That that may be one of the best lines of dialogue I've heard in a movie recently. Mm-hmm. Like just like because it's such it's so it's so true. If not from like a historical sensibility but just think about you personally i mean that's always the whole like everything you do historic or that's huge really pays off in the long run yeah like you know your generations to come aren't going to have the hang-ups that you have yeah i I just that struck me as easily one of the best lines i even heard in a movie recently and i think overall as we get into the fact that yes they they the the enterprise crew is is tasked based on like their experience and their high profile, you know, and, and Spock's volunteering to uh, go off into um, meet the chancellor and meet his like kind of entourage and bring him to earth, escort him to earth for the peace treaty. Um, so we get like, again, on the enterprise where we meet Kim Cattrall. Uh, mm. her- <laughs> what, what, what was that? Sorry. Her, I don't her- know. I don't know what's happening. I, it must be a noise with the mic. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, as Valeris and kind of again getting introduced to, she's a uh, you know one of the top Klingons in Academy history, and and Spock's kind of looking at her as like you know his time in space ending, and that she can carry on his legacy. We have Kirk doing a little bit of a uh, captain's log where he says, "I don't trust the Klingons. I never will, and I never will forgive him for the death of my son." As he puts down a, a picture of David. There's also a great little moment where like they're coming out of space dock and uh, Valeris is just like, sir, don't you know that like regulation, you know, she's kind of doing the old stuff thing, like regulation state that we'll only be in thrusters um, when we're out of space dock. And then the rest of the crew is just like, oh boy, here it comes. Like, and they're like, they all know at this point, like Kirk's going to be like his own man. But even like, even, even Spock's like, oh, like, no, don't do that. Um, yeah. So this was one of those this was i think the time when i realized i had seen this movie before yeah yeah uh, because even though i think it is plotted well for the most part it's so obvious that it's her right once like you upon a rewatch like yes it, like yeah for sure i i felt that i felt that exact same way uh when i was watching this where it's like the way that she's interacting with everything especially after the assassination which we'll talk about like is very much like She's definitely trying to lead them on different paths and kind of is like trying to improvise when they know that like Oh, see for me it was like she she brings up she is one of the people who brings up that like this is a turning point in history are we yeah. sure about this? And then everything after that is like she only does the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like she's just like this new character that nobody's ever talked about and she's just completely on the level. 
Mm-hmm. And then that's when I'm like, oh, it's it's so clearly her. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think on a rewatch, it's definitely like, yeah, it's clearly her. But also, yeah. I think, listen, like, oh, it works. I'm just saying, it, it's very clearly yeah. her. And I think it's just like, I like, I you know, for a long time, you know, just from cultural osmosis, I knew Kim Cattrall was like, oh, Samantha on the Sex in the City. You know, she's like the. The, the one that has sex all the time, all that sort of well, thing. Well, first of all, I do want to give a shout out for like Nicholas Meyer for some, like honestly seeing and uh, having an eye for Klingon babes. I just want to just Klingon say babes or, or Vulcan babes? Vulcan babes. Sorry. Like, yeah. he, like he, 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 he has an eye for bait for Vulcan babes and I, and I'm here for it. Um, but, um, but actually, but to be honest, like, you know, and on a more serious note, Kim Cattrall is actually very good in the role. Yeah, because um, I, I was going to say, like, I I knew her for a long time as, like, just from cultural osmosis and, and pop culture jokes and, like, Conan jokes as, like, she was Samantha on Sex in the City and she's, mm-hmm. like, the real sexy one and she, like, you know, has all sex, all, all this sort of stuff. And then, but, 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 I, but going back to this and going back to uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which she's also really good in. Um, it's been kind of fun to kind of discover like her in this era of her career when she's like not so defined by that. Yeah, but but I but I will say like you know I don't want to throw out that role. I mean like you know it's easy to kind of like joke about that aspect of it. But what I will say is that there's a level of authority and confidence that she brings to that role that you know even you know because is listen let, let's let's all be grown-ups here like you know it's like it's it's obviously you can make you can make light of her sex in the city role but in sex in the city it's like it's a very confident sexually mm-hmm. liberated character who has a bit of authority to herself yeah and even in retrospect the at least the authority aspect of it is gives a level of confidence and power to even her little appearances and things like this. Yes. So for instance, one of my favorite moments was, you know, when there were like two enterprise officers as the Klingons leave and then like they have, or they're going, they, yeah, they get off of the enterprise and then they are having like talks amongst themselves about like, Oh, they look so ugly. And like, they're, they're they're like really they smell bad and whatever and then she shows up and then she's like basically says like don't you have jobs to do blah 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 blah. but it doesn't feel naggy it feels like a position of authority Mm -hmm. and what i like about it in that sense even though it may be a ruse is like there's a level of like this is what i took it off of out of it what i liked about that little scene was like you know it is kind of like humans talking about other aliens Mm -hmm. and the vulcans while they are aligned morally with like, you know, humans, you know, they are kind of like an other alien character who have their own quirks and everything. So I did like this, at least this brief moment of like, uh, Hey, maybe cool it with the talking about other aliens talk. Yeah. You know, for sure. No, I think, I think she's no, I mean, I, I didn't mean to make light of the sex in the city thing. I'm just not, I, it's just like that's how I knew her for a long time. Oh, sure, and, and sure. like yeah. to really actually get into her work, because again, like it's like I didn't realize she was in Big Trouble in Little China until I first saw that movie, and she's also again really good really in good. that movie, really, really good. good in that movie, and she's really really good in this movie too. Uh, but eventually, we're going I w- through. I, I would say an underrated actress. Yes, for sure. I think yes. again, I think she gets defined by that Sex in the City thing, and I think like 
she should be because you know it's an iconic role for her but i think there's other stuff in her career that she's very very good at mm-hmm. um but eventually we do get sort of the big meeting between the klingons and the enterprise crew and the uh the klingons coming aboard the enterprise for dinner um and i should mention that uh i think i actually really like overall uh the way that Warner plays Gorkon and the way that the movie presents him. Mm-hmm. Like, I like that there's a sort of, again, sort of like the sort of like knowing that they're in a bad position, but also maybe he's had this thought. You could get the sense that he's had this idea for a while that like, he's kind of like, you know, this big Klingon warrior race, but maybe he has his eyes on like for the best thing for our future is to kind of, you know, more mingle with these outsiders and more be involved with these people and sort of the awkwardness that at that dinner. And again, like that line later where it's like, you know, you don't trust me and I don't blame you. And, you know, if we are entering this brave new world, like our generation is going to be like the, have the most difficult time. Like you can tell that there is sort of a, just a a general great leadership quality to him that's presented in, in all of his scenes up to his, his untimely death in the movie. Uh, but this is also where we introduce to his daughter and also Christopher Plummer's Chang, uh, eye patch and all. Uh, as we get to a very awkward dinner featuring lots of Romulan ale and lots of uh, Shakespeare talk, and one Hitler reference. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was that one was good. Yeah, because that's actually because I that again that's like when you're doing research where like you know because it's whole the whole thing about that is like. They're talking about Shakespeare and there's the joke slash sort of thing where it's like you haven't read Shakespeare until you've read it in the original Klingon, which is kind of funny because that's which again- is, but but what I loved about that is like and what and, and that's actually a little kind of microcosm of the entire scene is like that is actually funny. Like I that's a good funny line. I laughed yeah. at it. But you can also understand where somebody like Kirk is coming from from like you know, here's Klingons basically like, like saying like, oh, like, you know, like this, this human heritage and like, dare I say, appropriating it in their, in their own way. Yeah. So you can, it's like the movie does such a good job, at least from my perspective of like really making you understand that like there is a legitimate, understandable cultural divide between these two people. Right. And then it's it, not like the humans because it's very easy like for the humans just to be like the American party and then like you know the, the like the Klingons to be like the Soviets Nazis or whatever like the the, the film does a, a really good job of like establishing that like like these are just two different cultures that have been at war and it's very understandable that they don't like each other right and and then just the, like kind of the argumentation where it's like they don't trust the klingons like there are klingons at the table worried that like their culture is going to be washed away in these treaties where like you know mccoy absolutely denies that's like you will you will take away our culture like no that's not true uh you know well, and again also- also, the plot point that is important here, sorry to interrupt, but the important plot point is it's it's not like either party is coming to this 
because like they truly believe in it. Some right. parties do. Right. Like Gorkon. Right. They're doing it because like there's this kind of like natural event that they, they have to kind of do. Right. That it's like the, you know, the Klingons will die and their economy is like doomed essentially unless they kind of do this. But the, but there are side like, you know, people on both sides that are very much like this, you know, still untrusting of what this actually is. And again, I just like the fact that like when I'm doing research on the movie and I'm figuring out that like really like in Meyer is just using all these like just little historical references to build sort of this sort of thing. Because it's like the 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 Shakespeare thing is like, you know, like the, the Germans in World War II tried to claim Shakespeare for their own. And then even like right. the, the when like, you know, the breathing room thing is like and, and Kirk making, you know, change like we need a little breathing room and then. You know, like earlier, Spock was like Hamlet, scene three, act one, which is funny because that is also kind of a reference to the voyage home when that same thing happens, where like, you know, when Kirk, when Spock's in that mode, which I like. But anyway, we're like, you know, Spock's doing the like Hamlet, act three, scene one or whatever. And then, you know, Chang says, we need a little bit of breathing room. It's like, and then in Kirk in the same way, it's like Hitler, Germany, 1941 or whatever, or 1938. And it's like, that is also like legitimate history. And it's like, I like that they, they, Meyer is able to use all these little bits of history to kind of create this nuance and create this sort of like truthfulness to the world and to the scene. And I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they, they go off on very awkward terms, like kind of like, a, we, we should do this again sometime. And like very much like, you know, kind of like no, no party is very happy with the dinner. Um, and we get again, the Gorkon line and they kind of, part ways they go off to their respective shifts for the night gonna go to sleep like a line where kirk's like note no longer serve romulan ale at at uh, official dignitary dinners which i like that he was just very uh very hung over already not just from the the the, the romulan ale but from the, the general vibe of the dinner when uh he's later woken up and Spock tells him the report to the bridge when there's some strange stuff going on. Strange stuff. There's a energy surge. All of a sudden, it looks as if the Enterprise shoots some photon torpedoes at the ship. Has dis- disactivated their gravity. Uh, there's confusion on whether they actually shot the uh, torpedoes because at first it says that their inventory hasn't been shot, and then their inventory says it is. But Scotty's like, no, all of our torpedoes are accounted for. We get these shots of the Klingons floating, and all of a sudden these masked, uh, suited individuals in gravity boots come on board and basically kill the doctor and kill the chancellor uh, and shoot him. Shoot him dead. Uh, Kirk and McCoy decide to go on board to try to save the chancellor. Uh, on, you know, Chang kind of is telling them that, like, you know, someone's come on board for your ship. Like, it wasn't us. We're going to go and save him, come on board. McCoy tries to save the Chancellor, but has no familiarity with Klingon anatomy and doesn't really know what to do. Uh, Gorkon tells Kirk, don't, like, let this change anything. And eventually, McCoy and Kirk are arrested for the assassination of Chancellor Gorkon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I, sorry, that's, I, didn't, I, I didn't really have anything to say. I mean, that's uh, basically like, that, yeah. and then it gets to the next crux from the movie where there's kind of these three elements where now Spock is on the enterprise. He takes over and basically says, 
we need to figure out what exactly happened because right now it looks as if we fired on the Klingons. We're getting two different. Well, yeah. So that that's like the 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 big conflict is that the the evidence did show like that the Enterprise did fire on the Klingons, but not to any authorities' approval. So then it becomes like a whole like, well, how did this happen? Right. And, and again, like yeah. there's a whole thing where it's like the ship's computer says, yes, they fired two torpedoes. But Scotty says that's impossible because all of our torpedoes on board are accounted for. Mm-hmm. So there's a big mystery afoot. Um, and, and, and Spock is going to lead the investigation, even though Starfleet wants him back immediately. That's so it. This, this would be a good time for me to beat a dead horse. And just every, every episode of these, I just have to say, Leonard Nimoy is awesome. <laughs> so he's good so, like he is it's my just, favorite yeah. character in these movies and 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 i will i will own up to this one thing i did because it just for whatever reason i put on 09 in the in the background in the past like month or so yeah and then you know he's in that film too and he just really is like the best yeah he's just so good and the arc of that character has just been so good and then mm-hmm. like and I th- and what was what I what I liked about this film was I felt like this was the film that that just straight out fully showed this is what modern Spock is after learning all the lessons he did. There's none of this like him balancing out his character or learning the human way or the or the Vulcan way. This is like this was a highlight of kind of why Spock is the best of the best. Yes. Is like that he's a Vulcan, but is wise beyond his Vulcan years. And like, even like has a bit of lessons to teach about, like, you know, that aren't exactly Vulcan either. Like, so like, I thought that this was like, if, if any of the characters was like, this is like the best um, culmination of their character. Mm-hmm. Like Spock really got it in this movie. And I think that the other part of it too, is what I really like in terms of that is even comparing it to Valeris, who is, you know, fully Vulcan. And, and one of her things is just like, again, she's still very much on the logic thing. And so there's kind of like, but it's like, you know, cause she's kind but, of, point, but in like, a way that Savick isn't like, right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Cause, but she's like very, like she's very Vulcan. Like Valeris is very Vulcan. And I think that what's nice about it is like, you know, she's still kind of being like, well, what logic, you know, says this and, and Spock knows by this point that like, yes, logic is a big part of still who he is, but it's not the only thing. And like, he has a different view of that logic where he does like the Sherlock Holmes thing where it's like the logic dictates that if you eliminate everything that is possible, then only the impossible stands. Oh, and oh, that, he, like, he, full, kn- he full on does logic schmogic. Yeah, in this film, like he yeah. he basically says all but that, which is so, like very funny. But so, my favorite bit was with him was like I I just have to say this part was when um because they basically have to stall time before they have to go back to uh the 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 Federation yeah and you know and then Scotty comes up and then he's like and he's like uh he's like oh it will take some time to like figure out where this like you know this uh this um message came from or whatever and then and then scotty comes up and he's like he's like oh he's like oh um officer you know scott or whatever what does he call him like 
Yeah, like, like, uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, forget. yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's like, like Scotty. Like he's like you're like uh, Master Scott or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's like Officer Scotty. He's like it's like how long will it take before you know we're fully operational? Like in knowing that like you know Spock is doing one of those like implicit lying things, and then Scotty's like, well, it's not going to take us any time to get operational. He's like, um, Montgomery Scott is you know if we if we don't have the time to figure out this this aspect of like the treachery, then we won't. It's like then we'll have no time to save Kirk. And then Scott's like, oh, it should take like you know about a week or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> excellent. A couple was, of weeks. Couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, it'll take a couple of weeks then. <laughs> and again, it's just like it, like not only like a payoff to this, um, Spock as a character who will unquestionably do something like that, but also just kind of like a payoff to the light rule breaking that right. this Because even earlier, even earlier where it's like, you know, Uhura's like talking to Chekhov and she's like, well, the, the Federation wants us to come in like immediately. And it's like, you know, Chekhov's like same thing. Like, well, we, we can't do that. Like, you know, we, we got to like figure this out. And she's like, Oh, there's some sort of communication jam. Like I, I, I just can't get through the the, the message right now. And Chekhov's like, excellent. I mean, terrible. Like that's just all <laughs> aw- that that's just awful. Like you know, it's uh, we got to fix and, that right away. And all of that all, all also comes to a head with Sulu as well. Yes. Like oh, with with, whole... with with Christian Slater, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, tell them like, not the like we don't know anything about the Enterprise, sir. Do your ears not work? Yeah, sorry, sir. Like, and it, and it and it's really funny because not only it, it's just so it's such a nice, friendly, likable, relatable payoff to the fact that all these guys are buddies, like yeah. they're friends, and at the end of the day, they know what's up, and mm-hmm. the and like Sulu knows there's a good reason why they haven't like you know been in contact with them yet, and he's gonna like play, uh, you know, he's he, he's a uh, gonna play interference for yeah. them and yeah it, it's just it's just likable and just like, like other scenes from that plot because i think we'll take like the kind of different plot lines from this assassination happening because there's two other sequences that i think about with this which is though the scene in the kitchen which was very controversial on trek fans because traditionally the starships have like synthetic food but the fact that it had a kitchen was very like debatable even though it's a new ship. But anyway, there's this whole thing where like, oh, See, like what? That's one of those Nicholas Meyer things. Like where yeah. he's like, oh, uh, hundred. Yeah, yeah. No, fuck it. Like, you know, you, you're not supposed to fucking have a kitchen. We're going to have a kitchen. That that was actually like one of his, uh, one of his big things was like, I want to show a kitchen in this movie. Like that right, was like right. legitimate thing. But there's a whole thing about like, they're discussing like, well, they couldn't have like thrown, they can't like the clothes. There's like, definitely like, how did they, like Spock figures out like, okay, well, how did they, you know, kill these guys on the other ship? Oh, well, they had to have gravity boots and suits. Well, what they left them on the ship? No, because they had to leave because the gravity didn't get fixed until like, you know, right before Kirk and McCoy went. So it's like, okay, we have to find this missing suit and these missing gravity boots. And then someone, you know, it's like, they can't just like throw them out the porthole because they can't, like, that's not impossible. So it has to be on the ship. And then someone's like, well, why don't we just, why didn't they just vaporize them? And then, though, like, of course, like, Valeris, like, trying to cover her tracks is, like, you know, shoots, uh, you know, shoots, like, a pot and, like, you know, with a phaser. And it's just, like, well, like, you can't do an unauthorized phaser shoot. It'll, like, you know, like, you know, set off this alarm. And then I just love how all the other crew members, like, that we know come in. It's, like, does somebody set off a phaser? Like, what's going on? Like, like, like security comes in and Chekhov's, like, no, no, no. It was, it was a demonstration. Like, we're fine. 
Ohura comes in like, wait, does the phaser go off? And then Scotty comes is like, what the hell? A phaser went off? And then the last thing is that they eventually do find one of the boots in this locker and they bring in like this alien dude, like, you know, like Ross or whatever. And then like, you know, they're like, what's going on, everybody? And then Chekhov is like, let me tell you about the old like Cinderella story, uh, Russian story of Cinderella. If the shoe fits where and he drops the boot and everybody's like looking really awkwardly, it's like Mr. Chekhov. And he looks down and the guy has like webbed feet like that wouldn't fit the boot at all. That, that was pretty funny. That was pretty yeah. good. So while that's going on, we also have like what's going on with the peace treaty, which is like the the daughter of Gorkhan is basically like, you know, Kirk will pay for his crimes, but my father was very insistent on this peace treaty. We will continue to do it. Meanwhile, on Earth, the Federation president is talking with like kind of his ambassadors from the different things. And he's like, listen, like, you know, we like you, you, you don't believe that Kirk and McCoy like actually did this. Like it's, it's just not in their character, but all the other people are like, well, like, we understand there's a kind of like a essentially Sarek is like very very much like yeah but like under the letter of the law and for the best thing on this treaty like there's nothing we can really do about it like that we kind of have to go through with it because any sort of scenario that bringing them out is going to be like an issue it's going to cause more strife and then even in the the discussions between the federation president and the new chancellor She's basically like, listen, like, we're not coming to Earth because we don't trust you guys anymore. We need a neutral site that only a few people know about. And we are going to, like, put Kirk and McCoy on trial. And there's nothing you can do about it. So they're like, okay, we're going to move the meeting to the secret planet. And Kirk and McCoy are going to go to trial on Kronos. And we get the big trial of Kirk and McCoy. Which I just love the presentation of this whole thing. I really do. Like, I love sort of the, the basically like, it's like a show trial. It's very clearly that they're going to be like found guilty, no matter what it's kind of like, uh, again, uh, Mike, Michael Dorn as, as the war fan sister is great trying to defend Kirk and McCoy. Um, the way that they do like their, the translators, what they kind of do the, like they're initially like, translating but then we just cut to chang speaking in english which i thought was good by the way uh one detail that didn't make the final cut but one of the klingon translators on that scene is the captain of the klingon ship from the previous movie with the implication that like he basically got demoted from a ship captain all the way down to being a translator in court which i thought was kind of like <laughs> funny because it's actually the same actor Mm -hmm. But there's like nice moments where, you know, they're kind of basically turn everything and, you know, like Chang uses McCoy's soon retirement against him. And McCoy is basically like, you know, genuinely someone who's upset that he couldn't save the chancellor. And like, he's kind of on the side. It's like, he was our best hope. Like I wanted to save him. He's kind of pleading that like, I wanted to save him. Uh, Kirk is basically confronted with his own, um, captain's log which somehow got in the hands of the klingons which is it gives us a nice moment of his realization when he actually hears his words out loud of saying like i'll never forgive them for the death of my son and just like realizing just like how kind of shitty that is is like a nice moment for him that he can't defend himself there that it's like those are my words and that is what i said uh and just the presentation and everybody watching around the the different areas and basically just seeing like just the mockery of a trial that's happening. Just like the scene overall. 
Uh, and even the moment at the end where it's like, even like sort of this last plea from, from the, the war ancestor is just like, please consider that all the evidence is circumstantial. And then they're basically like normal, the normal sentence of death is commuted due to this and the ongoing peace talks. Instead, you will be sent to this basically slave planet where you will, you know, mine for, for stuff and live the rest of your days there. Um, and you know, if, you know, and if any attempt at rescue of the uh, two parties are are attempted, then the peace treaties are often indefinitely. So, Kirk and McCoy are sent to the snow planet, where they're basically set to be uh, slaves for the the rest of their lives. Yeah, hey, and th- and this really leads into a part of the movie that's fine. Yeah, I kind of like it, but it's and no, not like this. But, and that's the thing; it's not bad. But I maybe I'm looking at it from somebody where it became much. It became very obvious that I had seen this movie already. Yeah, which was fine. Um, but that being said, it's like you know, now that I'm watching it again, you know, I, I you know, I, I wasn't as engaged with it, like. I think my only issue with it is that while it is good and it's entertaining, it does feel kind of like the interlude between the first and third act. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because it, it is like also kind of it's like the stuff that's going on on the Enterprise and the the investigation is a little bit more interesting than like what's happening on the yeah, planet. And, and it's like and and Kirk and you know and and what's his name? Uh, what am I saying? What's his name? And Bones. They're not like you know they they don't really learn too much else. I mean, no, they, it's little bit of information that there is like a bigger plot to be had but at the end of the day it does feel it, it, it the middle of the film never escapes the whole like okay now that they've had the you know now that you know the severity of the issue that they're sent to this prison you really are just waiting for them to get back to the salt right else yeah yeah because there are some nights moments where like kirk kind of realizes right that there is something bigger and more people are after their heads and like there's kind of this you know our, our shapeshifter um kind of reveals to them that like hey there's a, there's a price on your heads um and then kirk realizes that there's something bigger going on here and if we don't get out of here then there's going to be more deaths and more conflict and basically all this is going to go to hell. And it's kind of Kirk realizing again, sort of the, what you said before that it's like, he's realizing that there are people that are going to much bigger lengths for this and that, you know, his stuff. It's like that at the end of the day, the peace between the Klingons and the Federation is like, you know, he's starting to be on the path where like, that's a scary thing, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing in the long run. So they have to kind of get off the planet. Like there's some, fun little fights that he has with like the like the people on like the big bulking people on the planet i like the design of that one dude uh that has like the blue and red sort yeah. of face and then he kicks him in the knee and i guess those are his genitals like right not every not everybody keeps their genitals in the same place will but eventually but he, our- he he did follow that up with to to the shape-shifting ladies like is there something you want to tell me <laughs> which is like a, a very a, a very tasteful version of I, I i am kind of thrown by these movies really demonstrating the more tasteful aspect of like kirk's flirtatiousness yeah like i i think they do a good job with that um i have to be honest though a lot of this prison stuff just made me want to rewatch guardians of the galaxy 
Fair. Again. <laughs> Very similar vibes. Yeah. Especially because yeah, yeah. again, like you're getting kind of more of like the weird make big makeup aliens where it's like like yeah. also like kind of the big like yeti thing that like lifts him up at the beginning that wants his coat. Like right. is like like <laughs> I like that though. It's like you know, he's like yelling at him in this other language, and Kirk's like, I just can't understand. And then the shapeshifter comes in and she's like, He wants your pledge to like the, the brotherhood of blood or whatever. And he's like, It's pledged. I'm I'm good. Yeah, I'm on your side. Uh, which is great. But then eventually, you know, the safe the shapeshifter reveals herself as a shapeshifter when she like disguises herself at this other kind of Planet of the Apes like looking big burly thing. And she's basically like, Yeah, they don't let women in the mines, so like I gotta disguise myself to get you out of here. So eventually she like and then she actually shapeshifts into like a little girl to help him escape. They get out on the surface. And then eventually it is revealed as well that yes, the, the shape, like the shapeshifter is getting paid to like actually kill them to make it look like it was, they were killed on an escape attempt because uh, as Kirk puts it, like one, one accident would have been fine, but two people dying in an accident would have been too suspicious and too obvious. Um, I like that. Kirk. I always like when Kirk kind of figures it out where it's like, she's like, listen, like, you had this flare. That's not prison standard issue. You have these clothes. That's not prison standard issue. Like you're definitely on this side. Uh, in which point, you know, we get the, this kind of little mini famous scene in this film where Shatner fights Shatner, uh, where the shapeshifter turns the Shatner turns in the Kirk and there's a big fight between them, um, which features the classic line where regular Kirk goes, I can't believe I kissed you. And then the shapeshifter goes, must have been a lifelong ambition, mm -hmm. which I know, I know Shatner ate up that line read very yeah. much. So no, no, it's fun. It's fun. There's a big fight between them. Eventually the Klingon guards come and they do the big, like, no, don't kill me. Kill her. Like she's, she's the actual shapeshifter. Um, which I was like, you know, that's the one thing where it's like, well, she should just shape just back into something else. But the whole point is that they're going to kill her anyway. No witnesses, you know, it was all kind of a big ruse. Meanwhile, this is where the, the enterprise has gotten the signal of where Kirk is. They go to the planet and don't know, don't know how to speak Klingon without the universal translator. That's another, that was another big point of contention between some of the, the Star Trek regulars and Meyer. Um, where they're they're badly speaking Klingon, but they get past it because the Klingon people on the ground don't care at all. Like that's literally the scene. It's like they don't really care like what's going on. This is just like a job to them. And Kirk gets beamed up. Kirk and McCoy get beamed up the moment he is about to find out like who did it, who's been behind their conspiracy. Um, which I love this a little bit too, where it's like, like you could have waited one more second, like I would have known who it was. Do you want to go back? And McCoy's like, absolutely not. And Shatner's like, it's very cold. And then they get over there. So they're all caught up in everything. Eventually they find um, uh, Scotty finds the bloody clothing from the uh, Klingon assassination in the engine room, brings it up. And just as they're about to kind of uncover who did it, they find the two red shirts dead in the hallway. Uh, and again, a little bit of a nice moment where it's like, hey, our guys are dead. But then they realize like there's something weird. They wanted us to find him. McCoy's immediately like, well, why weren't these guys vaporized? Like it would have set off the alarm, but like they would have been, you know, completely dead. Or if the person knew, then they could have shut off the alarm. And then basically uh, Kirk and, and Kirk and Spock come up with a plan to trap 
the person who actually did kill their co-conspirators because of course they know there's one more person on board because the first rule of assassination kill the assassinators and this is where we get the big reveal that they they play that oh these two guys are still alive our person enters the dark sick bay spock turns on the light and it turns out to be valeris herself yeah obviously her. yeah it's very obvious like again on a rewatch it's very obvious that it's her because especially the way she's acting all the way but we do get this this very intense scene afterwards I mean, but like, it, it, while it is obvious that it's her, the bigger reveal is that it is actually like uh, a conspiracy. Bunch of, yeah, it's a bunch of different other people. It's, it's a yeah. conspiracy between Valeris, Chang, and uh, some Federation officers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that basically all people who do not want to see this treaty come to pass and would rather stay kind of at odds with each other. They don't trust the other side. So they're basically like, okay, well, we'll there's another assassination plot coming up. They're going to kill the Federation president at the, uh, the big conference. And basically that old spell doom for the entire, entire thing. And, and, and what's also really nice about it too, is like it thematically is, is interesting to know that because a lot of it is like, you know, that there is some, some similarity, like, you could make the argument that the argument that the movie is making is that the one thing that morbidly and kind of like in a dirty way that the Federation and the Klingons did agree about fundamentally is that they, there shouldn't be peace, Mm -hmm. which is like the most interesting thing about it. Like there are parties there, like it was almost the exception that people wanted there to be peace between the two parties while in their hearts, everybody was more willing to um, continue the war between them. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and that while people like Kirk and everybody could look beyond that at at the, at the end of the day, that actually way more people would are, were more willing to fight for the war. Yeah. You know, it's very, especially because again, those people, you have like and it's a wide range of people too it's not like this is a big conspiracy just with the people in power it's like the federation officials you know a klingon general you know a a high-rising vulcan federation officer and again two lowly red shirts like there was a big range of people who were in on this and were going going to go to lengths to make sure that this didn't happen and there's a you know and again like there are people that kind of realize like listen like this is the wrong thing, but it is going to take work. And, and that's something that Gorkhan alludes to earlier in the movie, that this is going to be work, but there is a bright future if we can put that work in. So the, the, the very intense scene is that they confront Valeris on the bridge and Valeris basically confirms that, um, you know, Chang shot the missiles in a bird of prey but it's a new bird of prey that can shoot while cloaked, which is a prototype. It's the only type of his kind, but a very dangerous weapon. They try to figure out like where the new place for the, uh, the peace conference is, And she basically refuses to tell. And there's a nice little parallel where um, earlier in the movie, 
you know, Spock is doing one of his things where it's like, oh, like we're, we're not going to be able to communicate with them or just tell them that we can't like, you know, our warp drive is out or whatever. And Valeris is like a lie. And Spock replies an error. And in this scene, there's a nice parallel where Spock echoes Valeris's terms from earlier when she's like, I'm not going to say anything else. I'm not going to say who else was involved. I'm not going to say a word. I don't know. And then Spock is like a lie. And then Valeris turns and says a choice, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a nice little kind of change on it. But then Spock with one of the biggest scowls on his face that you've seen in any of these movies slowly walks down to Valeris's position and forces a mind meld on her. Mm-hmm. And this scene is so intense and very well directed. And I think what's really nice about it, even from just a character from the acting perspective, is this is something that like very much is within Nimoy's wheelhouse. He's very upset with this kind of protege that, that she doesn't look at the future the same way he does he doesn't have the same she doesn't have the same openness but also that this mind melt is something that spock is very much something that he's done forever but if we remember back to and I, we keep referencing this episode but if we remember back to like devil in the dark when he mind melts the horta and how emotional he gets there mm-hmm. and how emotional and like how kind of almost scary it is of just what he's feeling in comparison to this one where it's like he's calm and he's like forcing her, but all that emotion and all that fear is on Valeris. And she's basically all like screaming almost. It's just like this experience. It's such like a very intense and powerful scene in many ways of just like this moment. I, I just really like that this this exists in this movie. And yeah, that like again from a character perspective and just the way that these characters have evolved since the original series. And it's just so good. But eventually Spock comes in and says, we, she doesn't know. She doesn't know where it is. And it's like, well, we're up, we're up shit Creek essentially until our savior Sulu comes in and basically is like, whatever you need, captain, I'm there. They're doing this. Uh, here's where they're doing the peace treaty. We got to get there in time. We're already on our way. And it's like this nice little moment between the two captains and the fact that like, you know, despite all their issues that the, there's just a mo- moment in the movie where it's like, where Kirk is responding to captain Sulu. And it's like, you know, captain Sulu, we, we, we have your trust in you and everything. It's just a nice little, again, acknowledgement of like where Sulu's character has gone, that he is a captain on this ship, that he still has his connection with his crew, but he is a captain in his own right. which is very nice. And then the rest of the movie basically becomes the space-varying version of the traditional third act preventing the assassination. And this is this is where it gets full-on Jack Ryan. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at the end of this. Like, it, it's that classic political thriller, like, they know what is happening, and now it's just a race against the clock to make sure it doesn't happen. Right. So they get to the planet uh, where the peace treaty is happening. We kind of see that this peace conference is starting, but a Klingon is getting ready to, you know, he's hiding in like kind of a light fixture kind of thing or like a column. And he's like got like a like a gun ready to assassinate. Other conspirators are there like uh, Brock Peters and 
Admiral Cartwright and another Klingon ambassador. And they're all kind of like, this is going down here. The Enterprise arrives to the planet, but Chang is already there, that he knows that it's happening because he knows that Kirk and um, McCoy have escaped. And again, like uh, Chang is kind of the only one on this conspiracy that he killed the Chandler, Chancellor. But again, it's nice that he kind of riles up the rest of his Klingon crew, which is just like, do you want to take that chance that Kirk's going to do this again to us? Like, you know, like, and he kind of riles it up to like, no, we got to stop him, even though it's like, maybe these guys are kind of wavering a little bit. But Chang is very much on like, I want to keep being a warrior. And I know, like, I'm kind of crazy, but like, I'm going to be there. And it's just like Christopher Plummer, just through this whole fight, is just saying every known Shakespeare quote you could ever think of. But he's kind of, he is kind of nailing it. He's kind of basically being such this big kind of operatic actor in this moment and basically like his obsession with war and obsession with facing a warrior such as Kirk, where Kirk does have this reputation in the Klingon empire that he is well, yeah, like a fighter. Is, he is a warrior. It, it is kind of fun. Like that whole, like, you know, we're, we're, it's like, we're in a space battle with each other. Isn't this how it's supposed to be? And yeah. it's, 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 I like it. You know, it's funny because he's really not as active of a villain in this movie as you would think going into it. Yeah. But there, there's a lot of details within the story that make him a respectful villain. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that they're, I think the little plot detail of the fact that it's him and a bunch of other people prevents him from just looking like an idiot. Right. Yeah. That it's like, it's not like he's not a lone wolf and like preventing right. this. That it is, again, a grander conspiracy that he is a part of. Mm. Um, and that he's been a part of from day one of this. Mm. And so, uh, but basically, yeah, we do get this battle where the issue becomes um, that, yeah, this prototype bird of prey can fire while cloaked. So the Enterprise is just going to keep getting hit and getting knocked around and partially destroyed, but they can't see their target. They can't figure out where they are, where they are, um, which, again, is sort of there's kind of a nice like flying on the seat of their pants thing. Sulu comes in to be a distraction and sort of like Chang's like, aha, like, you know, here comes like the, the cavalry and stuff and the game's afoot, all that sort of fun stuff. But then we get the big thing where it's like, well, if we can track their tailpipe emissions, you know, and I've, I also like that, even though they kind of change this to be the enterprise thing, I'd still like that. It's like Uhura that has the idea of like, mm-hmm. they've got to, they've got like that detail. They've got to have a tailpipe of some way. They got to have some emissions. So can't we track that? We have all this stuff on board. So, they're trying to kind of survive. Um, again, just a nice little cap on the McCoy and Spock relationship where um, like uh, Dr. McCoy, would you like to perform some surgery with me? Like that would be fascinating. Like that they're, that they're really like on board with each other now and they're big, big, happy family. They basically kind of attach one of their tracking devices for the gases to this proton torpedo while Kirk basically is trying to outmaneuver the bird of prey eventually like they're able to to fire it. And we get kind of even a nice callback to um, Myers direction in wrath of Khan, where we get the big close up on Kirk saying fire. Like there's a nice little kind of connection. 
he milked that line like yeah. a cow. Like when he like like and and I have to like the direction of this whole scene where it's like everything's building up, the score builds up, and then there's the break of the score, and then Kirk's just like fire. Right. <laughs> like again, it's like it's like a parallel to Wrath of Khan where there's that exact same shot. And I yeah, love yeah. I love that. I love that. And then, you know, we see the thing homing on on Chang's ship and he realizes this is it to be or not to be big explosion of the thing and Chang is defeated and they have to get to the earth they have to get to the thing at the right time and um we're getting like this we're the, also, the editing of that last sort of moment is super good. Oh, uh, the di- the direction, the editing, and that's why it's like at the be- end of the day, it's like it is really satisfying blockbuster stuff going yeah, on. In the because playback. the editing, as you kind of said, that build up in the score and everything, it's going really quickly between McCoy and Spock loading this kind of homing torpedo, the Chancellor, the the Earth President, or the Federation President's speech. And this Klingon assassin putting together his gun. And but the way it's edited is like you kind of get like bits and pieces of the speech and then bits and pieces of like the score. It's not like the speech is playing through the whole thing. It like cuts in and out of the speech as you cut to everything, but it builds this intensity of just like, oh my God, they're gonna like he's putting the gun together, he's putting the sniper rifle together. They gotta get this thing out, they gotta get on the planet. There's this big buildup. Eventually they do land on the planet. The whole core enterprise crew is like rushing. It's like we gotta find the guy. Scotty goes off to like try to find the assassin. Kirk tackles the Federation president to prevent him from getting killed. There's big commotion everywhere. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait! You're you're missing the best part of that about that tackle. When, remember when he tackles like the the Klingon president or the Federation president? Yeah. The, the Federation president, and he tackles him, and he's like, "Ah, Kirk, Enterprise." <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's just like this fun, formal, like tackle. Right. Like, right. I, yeah. I yeah. Yeah. And then that. like they, they, um, you know, McCoy and Spock are like basically holding the, the, the conspirators kind of like, you're not going anywhere. And they're like, we've been caught. And then of course, Scotty gets the big moment where he like barges in on the Klingon assassin. You know what? I absolutely love that he got the big like moment of taking down the assassin right, which I, just, like, I thought was kind of funny he literally kicks the assassin out and everything like that and then um yeah like everybody does get kind of their moment here as they're trying to like save everybody and eventually in the kind of the calm down the commotion and the realization that this like kind of conspiracy was happening it's kirk who was of course kind of the that once the focal point of being like we can't trust the federation because Kirk was the one who assassinated him that he gives this big speech. And it's just like, basically like, you know, like I did say, you know, that we, we can't trust him, but like, you know, Gorkon and you and uh, everybody, like we, we, these people were afraid of the future and we can't be afraid of the future. And then this like nice little moment where he approaches the Gorkon's daughter and, uh about like basically like you know these people were afraid of what the future held and it's like basically like this is what we're all about like we're all about going into these unknown futures whatever and then he approaches the new chancellor and she's like you've restored my father's faith and kirk responds you've restored my sons and there's this kind of nice little moment of just like them acknowledging like 
we now can trust each other a little bit more. Like there, we, we can move on this path a little more freely and everybody's sort of like claps and applauds the moment. And we, we were, we were on board with the, with the peace treaty between the Klingons and the Federation. Uh, which kind of leads us into the very end of the movie, um, where the Enterprise is kind of back together. Um, Sulu goes off on his own adventures after being thanked by by Kirk, and thank you once again, Captain Sulu. Again, just uh, it's nice. It's nice that Sulu got to be his got his moment there. Um, but then Uhura gets the call that. Okay, they're going back. The Enterprise is officially to be decommissioned and they are to be decommissioned as a crew. And Spock gets the line where he's like, if I were human, I think the term I would use would be go to hell if I were human. <laughs> and then what's what's the heading? You know, they ask what the heading is. Kirk looks off. Second star to the right and straight on till morning. Um, which was which was mentioned that that was like a last minute addition from uh, Meyer that originally the scene was a lot be more somber and kind of more not a funeral but kind of like a, a a sad moment for the crew but but Meyer felt like that it should be a little bit more of like a optimistic moment uh, and the final captain's log from Kirk where he mentions that you know their legacy is done but a new crew uh, will take on the legacy of the Enterprise. Well, which- I- that's what I liked about the little the ending was that it was more so like this was like a essentially a fun joyride, but it was ultimately the movie was all about this is like their final mission, and I and I like that. I do have one thing to say about the ending though. Yeah, was like so essentially that's what they're doing. They're going on like a little joyride mm-hmm. on the Enterprise, but aren't there other people who work on the Enterprise? Yes. So it just made me think about all the other individuals who thought that was their last day and all those people who are like, have to call their loved ones and be like, I I guess I'm not coming home for like another, maybe a couple days. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think there's enough respect for the enterprise. There's enough respect on that ship for captain Kirk where it's just like, listen, as long as we don't get into any more crazy adventures where we have to land on the alien planet, if it's just a little joyride around the galaxy, I'm just saying like, imagine you work down in engineering. You think like you're about to like finish like that day. And then you get orders from the top being like, Hey, we're just going to like, we're just going to like chill out for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Orders from the top is we're going to join. I'm around. sure there's some people on that ship that are like, okay, I'm glad I'm getting assigned like to other. Ships right. right. <laughs> but again, it's like we said, like there's people on that ship that weren't, uh, weren't below, you know, accusing Kirk and McCoy of this big thing that they, that they didn't have that respect for their captain enough where, you know, they were willing to like sell them to the wolves. So, um, I mean, Hey, listen, I, I Ultimately, at the end of the day, strong ending. Yes, strong, really, really strong ending. Mm-hmm. And and I like the opening, the middle. I could, I could, I could leave or take. But I think what ultimately I liked about it was like it, it really was just like this strong, engaging, spacefaring political thriller. And yeah. you and you know, it's easy to say things like that as kind of like a like an approximate, but really it is ultimately like 
the Jack Ryan of space. And, yes. and, I, and I thought that it delivered on that. It does. And uh, it, again, it's, it, it continues to deliver on the character moments and what makes these characters and their relationships great. And sort of what, again, what makes these Trek movies so fun to watch in this original series franchise, which frankly, having watched the original series stuff like this is, just the original series films themselves is a banger of a franchise. Just everything about them, even like kind of the lower ones have something really unique and interesting about them um, from like the motion pictures, like effects and sort of it's ending to like, you know, again, the trilogy to the, even like the interesting stuff that we pulled out of final frontier into this political thriller, just the variety and the way that these films intertwine with each other, like it's just so. This these six films, I think, are such a good, an interesting collection of films, and it really just, I just love these six films. I really do. Even the Final Frontier, which again I've said I'm not as high on as you, but I really did rediscover that film on our last episode, and just I could really watch any of these six movies and be satisfied. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, um, I mean, it all comes down to like character, right? And, yeah. And it's like, and when you watch all three of these films, like, or not all three of the films, like the entire series of films, you know, for me, it felt like, felt like Final Frontier was at least for me more of like the emotional conclusion to like all the characters, and this kind of felt like a very epic epilogue, um, yeah. in, in in some ways. But ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, it gave me a new found love and appreciation for all the characters and all the relationships. And and it surprisingly wraps up in, in a very satisfying way. And um, one thing we didn't mention was that, you know, the finality of it, you don't really realize strikes you until those that last captain's log. And um, even like the the final signatures that show up right before the end credits, which um, was emulated later on uh, in um, Avengers Endgame. Yes, um, which, I, which, which I which is which is a direct uh, parallel. If you talk to Kevin Feige, who has acknowledged that as well, that that was a callback to this film. Yeah, um, yeah, it's very notable that they. Um... Yeah, the signatures were a big deal. And it's very nice to kind of see them all in a row and, and give each of that original series crew like a kind of, again, a, a, just an individual moment of seeing their their signature come up. It's very yeah. nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, overall, enjoyed it. Uh, like, I, I, thought it yeah. was, I thought it was good. And, I think and, it and overall, for the most part, like, I, I really haven't had a bad thing to say about any of the films. So, yeah, kudos. Yeah, great job. And again, just the original series will always be dear to my heart. And it's sort of, this is what I love about it. Um, so with that, let's kind of get into some aftermath stuff. Um, there was a big marketing push for this movie. Of course, it was attached to the 25th anniversary of Star Trek for 1991. The big year-long celebration, which included um, a Star Trek 25th anniversary video game which was kind of a point and click adventure which did feature uh the voices of all the original cast on the pc version of the game um also a very significant uh marketing 
tactic for this movie was the appearance of Spock on The Next Generation in a episode which dealt with the unification of, Vul- of Vulcan and Romulans in which uh, Spock directly referenced the events of this movie. That was part of the marketing. Uh, but it was a very big deal that Spock was showing up on the Next Generation series. One thing to note as well in the pre-production uh, or in before the release of this movie, and we saw the credit at the really beginning of the movie, original series creator Gene Ronberry did pass away prior to the release of this movie. He did see one cut and, of course, in a very Roddenberry way, hated it. Um, and uh, basically, not long after he saw that kind of first rough cut, uh, passed on. Um, and uh, there was a lot of sort of, especially from Meyer and Nimoy, a lot of like uh, regrets that their last sort of interactions with with uh, Ron Berry were so contentious because despite all the issues that Ron Berry has had had since the motion picture, he did get his day in the sun again with helping to really uh, showcase um, those early seasons of the next generation as his vision uh, Ron Berry, again, as you go back to my um, prelude episode, was a very complicated man um, and a very complicated relationship with Trek post uh, the original series and post the motion picture. Um, but it's not undeniable of less, less like kind of the, the spark he gave to this franchise and, and the creation uh, of it and, and just sort of his passion for it still exudes in these movies uh and that's why he kind of took these movies so seriously even if he didn't really have much um means of actually influencing their direction um for sure uh so there is like a a a big sort of uh tribute a a tribute card to him at the beginning of the movie that was inserted Uh, but the movie eventually does release on december uh Fifth, or sorry, December 6th, 1991, with its premiere on December 5th. Um, and was a big success, a big return to form from The Final Frontier. On its $27 million budget, it made $96 million worldwide and was very well regarded as, um, as, as a good finale and a great movie for uh, the Star Trek franchise. Paramount was very happy. And the crew, again, their mixed feelings of leaving were happy to kind of go out on, 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 a, on a better note overall. Even Shatner would admit that this was kind of a better ending than if they had just stopped after the final frontier, that everybody was very satisfied with this was, if this was going to be the end, this was going to be the end. Um, this is the last time the original crew would all appear on screen together, though uh, a year or two later, they would return for a sequel to the 25th anniversary game, Star Trek Judgment Rights, which is the last time that the entire crew is involved in a single project where they all return to do their voices for the video game. Um, of course, there would be other things where, you know, Shatner and Chekhov and Sulu would return for a full motion video game about the Academy. Obviously Spock would return for the 2009 movies. Um, Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu would be involved in some of these officially unofficial uh, fan projects uh, that Paramount officially endorsed. So everybody still had their involvement with the series, uh, but essentially, yeah, DeForest Kelly, this was his last role ever. Uh, he had essentially retired from acting and, and James Duhon as well does make one appearance on the next generation, but otherwise pretty much retires from, from acting. And this was sort of uh 
the end of the original series. And uh, from here on out, it's fully the new era of Trek with the next generation and coming very shortly after this, the spinoffs of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Uh, so while Trek, uh, the original series, was ending, in many ways, uh, the Star Trek franchise was getting to the peak of its popularity. And that will lead us into the next Star Trek film we will be watching as part of this series. We are moving on from the original series, but not quite fully. We are getting into the next generation films, but we are going to get our crossover, uh, our, our crossover between the original series and the next generation as Captain Picard and Captain Kirk will meet in the first Next Generation movie, Star Trek Generations, which is a very interesting film. It is interesting. Like Now we're kind of dealing in where I, I, I've seen some of these films, and that is a very good way of putting that movie. It it's interesting. It's I don't think it's bad, but it's, inter it's interesting. It's interesting, and, and again, lots to discuss with that one. So. Yeah. I'm very excited to start getting into a new crew. We're going to have to talk about the new crew and the new characters. It'll be very, very fun to kind of dig into a new set of, of characters and Absolutely. see what their relationships are. But next time is not a Star Trek episode. It is our final Kong episode. Uh, we are reaching the end of our American-made live-action Kong movies. And listen... As of right now, maybe in the future, we are not reviewing the animated Kong musical that was direct-to-video, The Mighty Kong. We're not doing that just yet. We're going to finish up our Kong series and finish up the MonsterVerse with Kong Skull Island, which I am also very ecstatic to talk about. Finally. Finally. Jeez, it's been, it's been too long. It's been too long. We do have our, if you go all the way back to our King Kong versus Godzilla episode, we do have a mini review of that movie uh, in that episode where we kind of talk about it very vaguely because the movie had recently come out. But I'm going to be very excited to really dig deep into the movie and sort of its themes and its characters and it's gas masks and it's samurai swords. And, Very and excited. And it'll be interesting because we're finally, we're, we're getting a little bit into some territory I'm familiar with. So I, I will be able to, um, I'll be able to impart some of my own behind the scenes knowledge into it as well. Yes. So that, yeah, for be, sure. That'll be fun. And then, and then we'll be shortly after get Kong Skull Island. We'll be on to what's next. We are ending one franchise and may soon begin another. And we will let you know as soon as we know. Uh, we do kind of know, but um, we're 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 oh, behind the scenes. We're 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 where there's a couple of options for our next one uh, after Kong. So uh, we'll be very excited to share with you what we eventually pick because I think any of the options we choose are going to be very interesting series to go over. Agreed. Can't wait. All right, and that wraps it up for this episode. Um, we are uh, kind of plug some stuff now, bonzillapod at gmail.com, uh, twitter.com slash bonzilla007, facebook.com slash bonzilla007. Like and subscribe, iTunes and SoundCloud. You can leave a rating and review on iTunes. Um, I do want to say, as I always say, thank you for your support. Um, I know recently we've actually 
I've seen on Twitter, people have been recommending our podcast uh, once again. Um, and for those new listeners that are going back to old episodes or new listeners just hopping on to new episodes, um, again, we're very thankful that you guys continue to listen to us and, and that you're so passionate that you do want us to review Singular Point. And you do want us to kind of get into uh, these other franchises. So uh, we're, we're happy to be part of your drives or be part of your walks or just be part of your casual Sundays. Whenever you listen to podcasts, we're happy to be part of your world. Take care. All right, everybody. Bye. Bye. Second star of the right, straight on till morning. <laughs> I can't believe I kissed you. Must have been your lifelong ambition. <laughs>